Okay, mate, 40 here. So the news about the U.S. Supreme Court striking down affirmative action on the basis of race into universities, it did seem like a lot of journalists took that very personally because journalism as a whole is not a business that can stand on its own two feet. It's heavily subsidized and therefore it needs to accommodate itself to the powers that be and the powers that be, the ones who rule virtually all institutions in our country are on the left. And the left is very pro-affirmative action, right? Remember, woke means that there are certain groups, certain allegedly oppressed minority groups, such as blacks and LGBTQ, trans, etc., who must be exempt from criticism. Here's uh, how it Half goes. Half a century ago, the media and the liberals loved the Supreme Court. And why not? Those justices established the constitutional right to abortion in Roe v. Wade and said race could be considered as a factor in college admissions in the Bakke case. Conservatives ripped those rulings but didn't try to discredit the court. But with today's John Roberts court overturning both those rulings in the past year, the national right to abortion, and last week tossing out college affirmative action, there's been some Something of a media freakout. Add to that the court knocking down Joe Biden's student debt relief and saying a web designer can't be forced to design a same-sex wedding site, and you have many infuriated Democrats. AOC says impeachment is not off the table. Congressman Ted Lieu says he wants to expand the high court because of its radical, extreme supermajority. Uh, keep in mind that court packing turned into a fiasco for FDR. Freedom of action has always had a contradiction at its heart hurting some people like Asian Americans who are also a minority, while helping others such as blacks and Hispanics. And it's brought out plenty of ugliness. The Atlantic's Jamel Hill, who is black, telling an Asian American on Twitter that you gladly carried the water for white supremacy and stabbed the folks in the back whose people fought diligently for Asian American rights. White supremacy? It's perfectly fine for pundits to attack SCOTUS rulings they don't like, but is it going too far, based on partisan differences, to try to undermine the institution? I'm Howard Kurtz, and this is Media Buzz. These end-of-the-term rulings are fueling heated media reactions on the left and the right, sometimes in quite personal terms, as well as from the president. Is this a rogue court? This is not a normal court. Impeach the justices, term limit the justices, pack the court. For all the talk of civility and the talk of the restoration of norms, it seems there is no institution of our republic that won't be destroyed in defense of their democracy. This court has adopted a kind of imperial mindset. Six right-wing politicians in robes on the Trump Supreme Court are granting themselves the authority to govern as a kind of unaccountable super legislature. The court's affirmative action ruling, uh, which was pivotal, um, it's causing liberals' heads to explode. They are even using it to call Asians white supremacists. And I'm not joking. I'm not making this up. It's the feeling that I and people who look like me and were born like me don't have the right to the promise of America as spelled out in our founding documents. Wow. So unless, unless people like Jonathan Capard, who's a twofer, right, both black and gay, he feels denied the promise of America unless the playing field is tilted in his favor. So 
right now, Harvard uses approximately a, a 400 SAT you know, point advantage to, to admit black students. If they were admitted solely on the basis of, of merit, according to one study, fewer than 1% of Harvard would be black. But uh, Harvard's Reshman class, by contrast, is 15% black. That's, so by those standards, according to that study, that means that uh, only about six out of 100 blacks in Harvard's freshman class would, would be there if the sole basis for admission was academic merit. Joining us now to analyze the coverage, Ben Dominich, editor-at-large for The Spectator, and Richard Fowler, the radio talk show host, both are Fox News contributors. Ben, how did we go from the media criticizing these last Supreme Court decisions to denouncing its credibility and calling it corrupt? Well, one of the big things that's left out of all of this is that this court has actually been quite balanced in its rulings. It dealt uh, some real losses uh, mm -hmm. to Republican efforts when it came to redistricting and the like just earlier in this term. Uh, and policy. obviously, you know, there's there's a number of other areas where, you know, it performed in ways that are, you know, completely at odds with the framing of them, you know, as Chris Hayes said there, of being this kind of imperial, you know, uh, entity handing down uh, rulings. The other thing that I think that is left out here is that of all the entities that uh, represent our federal government at the, more, uh, at the moment, I would argue that the court is being the most representative of public opinion in the sense that if you actually look at the uh, affirmative action question when asked both by Harvard's own polling efforts and by uh, the Pew uh, Forum and the like over the last several years, it's a 70-30 issue at best. It's se uh, the most recent uh, Pew poll was 74-26 in terms of, Harvard's of the number of Americans who are opposed to affirmative action. And so I don't think that this has has the same kind of flavor uh, as it would in perhaps other areas where it's viewed as the court supplanting itself over public opinion. In fact, they are ruling according to the Constitution, and, it's in, and it is consistent with where Americans are. Well, you have a point on affirmative action, but Richard, with uh, AOC talking about impeachment and Dems talking about court packing, the media reporting on this is not that this is Looney Tunes, and we all know that none of this is going to happen. Look, listen, I, I think there's, the media is missing a story here, right? And I think it's important to figure out the missing stories so you can understand where AOC and all these folks uh -huh. come, will come up with court packing, I think. And that has to do with many of the ethical missteps that the court has made over recent, right? We have pictures of Supreme Court justices palling it up with millionaires. And oh, my God, the Supreme Court justices palling it up with, with millionaires. We, we, we can't have that. I mean... The court must be corrupt then. Way to say, hey, we're going to unelect them or they're beholden to the people. So with that being said, when you put the affirmative action court, when you put the affirmative action ruling in the microscope and you say, well, okay, so if this is true to most applicants. So... But before that, the coverage was like, this is the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I certainly think that, you know, there's an overreaction on, on this point because uh, of so much of the dedication of a lot, a significant portion of the left to the ideas that are, that undergird the affirmative action system. But I would point to the analysis of someone who I think is, is one of the most intelligent uh, political analysts on the left, uh, Rui Teixeira, who's formerly of the Center for American Progress, now at AEI, who made the point that if you're actually running against this, you're doing it at odds with the current trends among the American working class and middle class in terms mm -hmm. of their priorities. You're doing it you know, completely at odds with what we see them saying about that way that they want our college systems to work. And I didn't hear any of that in this media coverage, any of it sort of saying, well, 
well, you know, the court is basically saying we have to reset on this on these things, on these different questions. The colleges are free to analyze things in different ways, which I expect that they will. You know, uh, leaning more into personal essays, leaning more into things like that, as opposed to, to test scores. There's going to be a backlash to this. But yeah, it's fascinating how conservatives are so quick to claim that absolutely hopeless that uh, these Kenny left-wing college administrators will figure out ways to get around this. Well, California banned affirmative action, and as a result, there's been a dramatic decrease in the number of you know light, low IQ groups admitted to our elite universities. So the university industrial complex will found ways of mitigating, mediating, reducing the claims of merit, all right, to maintain a certain diversity of uh, low-achieving groups. But this will still have a substantial uh, effect. Okay, so I was able to sleep in this morning. That's why I'm so energized right now. I was able to sleep in until about 4.20 this morning. After my shower, I fired up my computer. And just before I was going into my my recorded 12-step talks that I like to listen to to get my head straight for the day, this is what YouTube promoted to me on, on the front page of YouTube.com. So surely, guys, surely YouTube is not promoting misinformation here. Well, warm welcome to today's talk, Tuesday, the 6th of June. Now, today I want to report on the most impressive piece of scholarship that's so far been released on the... Most impressive piece of scholarship? Oh, it's from a, a, a doctor, Dr. John Campbell. A doctor? Well, not a medical doctor. He's a retired dude in public health who used to teach nursing but it's really important to him that you think of him as a doctor they're not a medical doctor so in, in australia right chiropractors are not considered doctors but whenever i talk to a chiropractor on the phone or in real life they always introduce themselves this is you know dr cohen you know dr ali <laughs> dr salazar and whenever i talk to a medical doctor it's invariably you know this is john this is pete effect of lockdowns this is it here the whole thing is available and in the public domain and i'm just going to give you a headline to see if you uh, want to watch this video or not uh, the, the talk is called lockdowns were a costly failure and covid19 lockdowns were a global policy failure of gigantic proportions according to this report and this report actually looks at empirical data real numbers in the real world not whoa this report guys it looks at empirical data i mean it's looking at real numbers in the real world this bloke's got 2.81 million subscribers. And he's saying that evidence on COVID restrictions is now conclusive that they were absolutely useless because we have a John Hopkins study, guys. A John Hopkins study looking at real data, empirical data, data from, you guessed it, hold on, the real world. Whoa. Not modeling as was done pretty well always in the past. Oh, so it's just modeling being done in the past. So. Socially isolating yourself is a response to pandemics that's existed for thousands of years. It was existed in biblical times, right? The Torah prescribes social isolation during, you know, some times of plague and pandemic. It's, it was used with regard to the Black Death. It's a very common time-tested way of responding to social pandemics. But apparently all studies until now, according to this doctor were just based on modeling, but now we've got empirical real-world data. Very exciting. So that's what this is about. Now, this is the report here, uh, just released on the, just released in June. Uh, as I say, very thorough report, all available in the public domain, published by the London-based Institute of uh, Economic, uh, Economic Affairs. And Okay, so this is a libertarian institute. Uh, it goes on to well over 200 pages. So um, check it out for yourself. 
completely free to download, which is very magnanimous, of course, of the authors in the Institute of Economic Affairs to do that, um, but, but comprehensive and completely readable. So let's get straight down to what it's talking about. Now, lockdowns are a costly failure, giant, uh, a global policy failure. So th this is everywhere, um, pretty well wherever you are. Um, we've been let down by our government. So we'll be looking at the way reports were written, but not adequately scrutinized by government. This is primarily a governmental failure. So this guy is upset that uh, we haven't adequately scrutinized previous academic studies. So you can be sure that he's thoroughly scrutinized this particular study. Guys, we, we need to thoroughly scrutinize these things before we change our way of life. And I personally feel let down, and, um, and I know a lot of you do uh, as well. Um, now, this is the update we're just looking at here. That was the previous version there. So as I say, all available. Check it out for yourself. It's a systematic review and meta-analysis. So it takes the combination. So when I have friends who want to push like fringe uh, medical scientific theories on me, I always tell them, send me, and they, what they usually send me are like uh, tweets from, you know, various randos. And I say, no, send me a meta-analysis published in a prestigious journal. All right. You, if you meta-analysis mean you look at all the previous studies on the topic and you rate and rank the, the studies by their power, right, by you know, how, how important they are by, you know, how many people they use, the, the methods that we use. And so you, you develop an overview of all learning in a particular area until now, and you put it all together. Right? So meta-analysis, absolutely essential for getting a handle on things. But what uh, this review does not do is uh, publish in a prestigious journal. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but uh, if I'm going to spend my time reading a scientific study, I want it to be in a prestigious journal and uh, if it's going to be something groundbreaking, normally I'm going to want to see a meta-analysis. combination of useful papers, which is an excellent way to do research. Uh, published in London, um, Institute of Economic Affairs. Did lock down COVID restrictions, social distancing, non-pharmaceutical interventions, whatever you want to call it. Uh, affect COVID uh, mortality based on the empirical evidence. This is not someone sitting in a back room with a sophisticated uh, calculator or a sophisticated computer. This is actually real-world data. What wow. actually happened? And of course, that wow. is what science is all about. Science is wow. all about empiricism or it's about nothing at all. Science is not theoretical, it is a practical discipline. Um, systematic search and screening procedure. So they looked at pretty well 20,000 studies, 32 qualified, but only 22 converted for meta-analysis. And that is because only 22 contain the real world data that was required. In other words, the numbers, the numbers in the real world. And this is why this study is so refreshing. We're getting back to reality. I think we've been in a bit of a, bit of a flight of fancy for the past few years. Uh, Thank God, guys, we're getting back to reality. All right, finally, we got some scrutiny. And we're going to deal here with empiricism and real-world data. I mean, what a relief. Thank God that there are these brave contrarian voices out there. Even though squelched by YouTube and, I mean, poor bloke's been limited to just 2.81 million subscribers, Dr. Dr. John Campbell, right? Not a, not a medical doctor, but a retired nursing instructor. Uh, ably led by government and mainstream media. Uh, but now we're back to scientific reality, which delights me. Wow. Um, so 22 studies actually measured mortality data not derived from modelling. Now, they used a stringency index as one of, the, uh, one of the things they looked at. That's how strict the lockdowns were. So they were comparing to less strict areas such as Sweden. Average lockdown in Europe and the United States in the spring of 2020, which is as far as this data goes. So this is the, essentially the first wave, isn't it, the spring of 2020. Only reduced mortality, uh, COVID-19, by 3.2%. Man, this is so exciting. I mean, I, I'm so, so thrilled to be able to share this with you. And luckily, Fox News is on this story, guys. CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post completely avoid John Hopkins' study finding COVID lockdowns ineffective. Man, why do they 
Why do they try to hide the truth from us? I mean, next they're going to start turning the, the frogs gay. Come on, guys. That, I... <laughs> We are getting reaction down. tonight to wow. a report we told you about yesterday, concluding the coronavirus lockdowns have had little to no effect on mortality during the pandemic. Correspondent Jonathan Seary shows us tonight from Atlanta. Opponents of mandates are expressing vindication after one of the most trusted sources of data on COVID-19, Johns Hopkins University, published a study concluding that lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. I think it's very appropriate that we take a look back and admit our mistakes. Uh, if, if, if we were wrong, we need to know for the next pandemic. In the Johns Hopkins report, three leading economists analyzed data from 24 studies and determined travel bans and mandatory school and business closures early in the pandemic reduced COVID deaths by only 0.2 percent. I think it's important that we try and remove all the politics and really talk about what the data shows, what science shows, and, and support free inquiry and, and people asking important questions about how to get pandemic policy correct because this isn't the last pandemic we're going to face. The study was not mentioned in today's White House COVID briefing. However, federal health officials said they welcome a proposal in the Senate to create a bipartisan task force to investigate the pandemic's origins and the response of the Trump and Biden administrations. I think it's important to look at every aspect of this outbreak for lessons learned. That is not only what the origin of the virus and the origin of the outbreak is, but many other things that we could learn from in the future so that we can prevent something like this happening or respond better if and when it does. And an FDA advisory panel is scheduled to meet February 15 to discuss Pfizer's application to expand vaccine access to children under the age of five. A Kaiser Family Foundation survey finds that three in 10 parents with kids in this age group would get the shots for their children right away if approved. John? All right, we'll see where that approval goes. Jonathan Sari for. Well, thank God for Fox News, those brave truth soldiers at Fox News. Like they're, they're willing to, they're willing to, you know, bring us the news that the, the mainstream media is just, you know, just trying to black out from from our knowledge. All right, uh, this is Bruce Lee. He's a senior contributor to Forbes. He's a writer and a journalist and a systems modeler. What does he have to say? Did so-called Johns Hopkins study? Really show lockdowns were ineffective against COVID-19? By Bruce Y. Lee. Have you seen the so-called Johns Hopkins study that's been making the social media and Bill Maher rounds lately? Some folks have been asserting that this Johns Hopkins study somehow showed that COVID-19 lockdowns have been essentially useless. If you haven't seen what they've been referring to, could it possibly be because there's been so-called a full-on media blackout of this so-called Johns Hopkins study? as an article for Fox News has claimed? Or maybe, just maybe, this Johns Hopkins study didn't receive much press because it wasn't exactly what some people have been claiming that it is. If you've noticed, some have been repeating the name Johns Hopkins study as if it were some kind of magical phrase like open sesame or umbop. In actuality, it's not really appropriate here to call what's being circulated a Johns Hopkins study which might suggest that Johns Hopkins University has somehow commissioned or endorsed the study. Nevertheless, some people in social media accounts have been pushing the whole Johns Hopkins name. Yeah, the university itself didn't write the paper, 
because buildings can't type on laptops without crushing them. Heck, the paper even stated that, views expressed in each working paper are those of the authors and not necessarily those of the institutions that the authors are affiliated with. Therefore, if folks really want to mention Johns Hopkins, they should instead be referring to this working paper as being, from a professor at Johns Hopkins University, as Marr did in this past week's episode of his HBO show Real Time with Bill Marr. As you can see, Marr dropped the Johns Hopkins name without even mentioning the professor's name, Steve H. Hank, Ph.D., a professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, an American libertarian think tank. Marr also didn't specify that two of three authors weren't even from Johns Hopkins University, Jonas Irby, M.S., whom the working paper described as a special advisor at Center for Political Studies in Copenhagen, Denmark, and Lars Jonning, Ph.D., who is a professor emeritus in economics at Lund University, Sweden. Moreover, Marr didn't clarify that the three authors were economists rather than medical, epidemiology, or public health experts. Isn't that a bit like three proctologists telling you how the economy is doing? It's not clear how much economists alone would understand the complexities and subtleties of medicine and public health. After all, if you were to end up in the emergency room with an injury, don't worry an economist will be around shortly to reattach your arm, may not be the most comforting thing to hear. Oh, and note that Irby, Johnning, and Hank themselves used the term, working paper, to describe what they had put together. Simply calling it a, Johns Hopkins study, glosses over this important distinction. A working paper is not the same as a peer-reviewed study published in a reputable scientific journal just like how a YouTube video of you getting pelted with sausages would not be the same as a full-length Hollywood movie. Basically, anyone who has access to the internet, a laptop, smartphone, and opposable thumbs, can post a working paper on a website. So while it is clear that Meerkats alone did not write and post this working paper, take anything that it said with 17 Ugg boots full of salt. This working paper did make some bold claims. For example, it concluded that lockdowns have had little to no public health effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs where they have been adopted. In consequence, Lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. By the way, what did the authors consider lockdowns? Well, according to the working paper, lockdowns are defined as the imposition of at least one compulsory, non-pharmaceutical intervention, NPI. Wholly Changing Definitions, Batman. By Irby, Johnning, and Hank's definition, even face mask requirements would be considered a lockdown, right? After all, Face masks are NPI since you don't eat or inject face masks into you. Yet, how many times have you heard when wearing a mask, how's that lockdown of your face going? Sure, a face mask may prevent your nose from wandering away from your face and partaking in a rave, before returning to your face in the morning. But other than that, face mask requirements really don't restrict your ability to move away from your home. This doesn't quite jibe with the dictionary.com definition which describes a lockdown a security measure taken during an emergency to prevent people from leaving or entering a building or other location. So unless you are wearing a ridiculously enormous face mask or one with BDSM chains attached to your friend, wearing a face mask shouldn't prevent you from leaving or entering most buildings. Okay, changing definitions aside, did this working paper really provide enough evidence to support its bold claims? In a word, no. In two words, heck no. The authors claim that they performed a systematic review and meta-analysis. 
that should mean that they should have considered and included all published peer-reviewed studies relevant to the topic at hand. Yet, this working paper did not include or even acknowledge many such studies that have shown the benefits of NPI such as face mask wearing and social distancing without explaining why the three authors excluded such studies. Of the 34 studies included in the review, 12 of them were actually working papers. In fact, 14 of the studies were actually from economists with only one being from epidemiologists. This is odd since most of the key NPI research studies have been conducted by epidemiologists, medical researchers, and other public health experts. To qualify as a meta-analysis, a study needs to fulfill established criteria, which includes demonstrating that you've included all of the studies that have been published. Without providing clear evidence that you have done so, instead of a literature review and meta-analysis of the effects of lockdowns on COVID-19 mortality, would a better title of this working paper have been Stuff That We Selected to Support Our Point of View? Not only that, Others have pointed out various flaws in the working paper's actual analyses. For example, here's what Gideon Meyerowitz Katz, an epidemiologist, tweeted. Later in the tweet thread, Meyerowitz Katz suggested that some cherry picking was going on with the working paper. And when you do a review of the literature and select a paper to be included in your so called meta analysis, it's not a good sign when the authors of that paper disagree with your interpretation of their paper. Claiming that NPIs have had little to no public health effects simply goes against what's been observed and documented throughout this COVID-19 pandemic. Just look at the rather stark differences among how countries have fared during this pandemic in terms of COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. Countries that have followed the existing scientific evidence such as New Zealand, Taiwan, and South Korea have had much fewer deaths and hospitalizations than countries that have frequently veered away from the science such as the U.S., the UK, and Brazil. These certainly weren't the only problematic issues with the working paper, but why go deeper into them since there's been a so-called media blackout of this paper, right? At least, that's what Joseph A. Wolfson, a media reporter for Fox News, tweeted in all caps. Yep, Wolfson claimed in an article for Fox News that, there has been a full-on media blackout of the new study outlining the ineffectiveness of lockdowns to prevent COVID deaths. Really? A full-on media blackout? Apparently, many of us didn't get the memo. In his article, he asserted that the Johns Hopkins study received no mention on any of the five liberal networks this week. According to Grabian transcripts, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS and NBC all ignored the anti-lockdown findings after having spent much of the pandemic shaming red states with minimal restrictions in events deemed by critics as super-spreaders. There were plenty of non political and nonpartisan reasons not to cover this working paper. Obviously, media outlets can't cover everything that anyone happens to post on a website. Otherwise, you'd be getting daily updates on what's been posted on the Fart Share website. It's not clear what a full on media blackout even means or how exactly it would work. How in the world would someone corral all legitimate journalists everywhere and tell them not to cover something? Would there be a secret sign, emoji? or set of semaphores? And would space lasers somehow be involved? Telling real journalists not to write about something probably would motivate them even more to write about it. This whole, Johns Hopkins study, situation is like deja vu all over again. Back in April 2021, I covered for Forbes how some people were pushing a so-called Stanford study, that wasn't exactly from Stanford and wasn't even really a study. 
so be wary whenever people emphasize the name of any particular academic institution associated with a study rather than focusing on the study itself and who specifically performed it. Universities consist of many different professors and other academics who have varying levels of expertise and experience in the academic freedom to pursue whatever research they choose. Just because someone is from a given university doesn't necessarily mean that the person knows what he or she is talking about. Again, instead, evaluate the person's background and what specifically he or she is saying. Sure, Irby, Johnning, and Hank working paper may not sound quite the same as a Johns Hopkins study. But in this case, the former would be a whole lot more accurate description than the latter. Okay, there's a lot of common sense there in that uh, in that analysis. I mean, that uh, people on the right, in particular, are just the dissidently inclined, or just jumping all over this. This study seemed uh, sympathetic, right? I mean, touting itself as a Johns Hopkins study because. <laughs> It was conducted by an economist at John Hopkins, uh, then claiming there was a full-on media blackout of the paper, right? The, first of all, the paper is a working paper, not peer-reviewed. It was published on the website of the Institute for Applied Economics, right? not exactly a traditional medical institution. Right? None of the authors are doctors or scientists. They're there are two economists and one employee of this libertarian institute. Uh, all of these trio are, have been extremely anti-lockdown since March 2020. And, uh, yeah, the paper's got a really weird definition of lockdown. Right? So the most inconsistent aspect of the paper is reinterpreting what a lockdown is. The authors define lockdown as the imposition of at least one compulsory non-pharmaceutical intervention. So if you wear a face mask anywhere, that is considered a lockdown. So Neil Ferguson of Imperial College says, by this definition, the UK has been in permanent lockdown since the 16th of March 2021 and remains in lockdown, given that it remains compulsory for people in the UK with diagnosed COVID to self-isolate for at least five days. Of the 34 papers ultimately selected for this meta-analysis, 12 were working papers rather than peer-reviewed. 14 studies were conducted by economists, not exactly public health or medical experts, and the inclusion criteria doesn't include modeled counterfactuals, the most common method used in infectious disease assessments. It excludes most epidemiological research from the review. Included studies are not representative of research as a whole on lockdowns. Many of the most robust papers on the impact of lockdowns are excluded. All this adds up to is a very weird review paper. The authors exclude many of the most rigorous studies, but include those that are the entire basis for their meta-analysis in the first place. They then take a number of papers, most of which found that restrictive non-pharmaceutical interventions had a benefit on mortality and then derive some mathematical Estimate from their regression coefficients indicating less benefit than the papers suggest. All this together means that the actual numbers produced in the review are not interpretable. So if someone goes gaga over this paper and touts it as you know some major thing, like uh, Dr. John Campbell here, then uh, he's a pretty ignorant person. This translates to approximately 6,000 avoidable deaths in Europe, 4,000 avoidable deaths in the United States. And... Uh, when we come to look at the cost-benefit analysis of this and how this compares to other diseases, these really are small amounts given these people primarily with significant comorbidities. Not all, but primarily. Shelter so Dr. John Campbell turns out to be primarily a t trainer of nurses. 
not exactly much of a doctor. So what's going on with uh, the Biden administration, the courts and social media? So major court judges rule the Biden administration must limit most contacts with social media giants in a suit filed by Republican AGs in Louisiana and Missouri. In a decision some media folks are calling an attack on free speech, the Trump appointed judge ruled that Biden officials went too far in lobbying to remove posts dealing with vaccines and interference in American elections. There are some allegations of some very heavy-handed tactics here where the government was pressuring social media companies to say what it wanted to say. When the government is telling social media companies what to do, there is a risk of censorship there. For them to now suddenly have a hands-off attitude and let anything uh, run rampant across all of these platforms would just be radical. Joining us now from Connecticut, Charlie Gasparino, senior reporter at Fox Business Network. Charlie. The judge in this case, and the Biden administration has appealed and the injunction could be overturned, says not only did the administration go too far in lobbying, pressuring uh, these social media companies to take things down, but has silenced conservatives in the process. Well, all that could be true, and this still could be kind of a funky ruling, right? I mean, listen, obviously the facts are not great here. The Biden administration basically was trying to, basically got Twitter essentially to censor anything that was not uh, not following the party line regarding vaccines and, and more than that. And, and, get, and actually getting people canceled. Alex Berenson, the journalist, was canceled because he's a vaccine skeptic. All horrible, disgusting stuff. But... I, I don't know. How is it illegal for the government to ask? <laughs> you you right. see what I'm saying? They don't make I mean, the final reporters. decision. The companies make right. the we're, final we're, decision. We're, right. We're reporters. We get a lot of crap from people, right? And people call our supervisors. Uh, the question, you know, you want kind of, you kind of want to have that dialogue with people that you're covering. And, yeah. you know, social media is kind of a journalism out, out, outfit, even though it does have, uh, you know, pleasures that we don't have, like Section 230 of the Communications Act. They right. can't get but, sued for lying. By the way. But in any event, by it, way, let it me, is. Let me jump I don't, in. I don't, let me just jump in. Go, because go the Trump campaign did some of this as well. And the Twitter right. files investigation uncovered some of this. And the mainstream media basically ignored it. But do you see it as a battle over free speech? You know, it is a battle over free speech. I don't know but I don't know the law here. The law seems dubious here that you can tell the government not to call up anybody, not to call up a social media company. Mm -hmm. Now, if the government was essentially I don't know, bribing them, extorting them. Okay, you know, we'll take away X if you do if you don't if you don't ban Alex Berenson from Twitter. Well, then we're talking, then that's legal. And that's not a First Amendment issue. That's that's a crime. Okay, now yeah. can you charge a government for that? I don't know. But point. that gets into another area. So Mark Zuckerberg got 70 million signups in a couple of days for his new. Okay, so if the full force of the United States government is reaching out to you, is it, doesn't that inherently have a, a chilling effect, right? If the White House reaches out to you. Right, you, you know, so much of your welfare and your, your profits are based upon government uh, favor. Why would you not be intimidated? Why would that not have a censorious effect? Okay, so I'm struck by all the coverage of the French riots, but almost all the coverage treats it as something that's unique to France and some problem with France, when in reality, the populations involved they cause very similar problems everywhere they are in the world. There's nothing particularly French about these French race riots.
So let me let me play a little bit here from our favorite uh, Peter Zion. France. Uh, there have been a number of protests and a number of schools and police officers have been burned in the last couple of days. The triggering event is the police killed a kid. Um, I want to say it was like 15, 17, something like that. And so there's been this spontaneous uprising of violence. We haven't seen activity like this since 2005. Back then, similar cause, uh, police killed a couple of kids that were hiding from the police, and it triggered riots that lasted several weeks. Uh, too soon to know if this is going to be one of those sort of explosive, protracted events, but it's worth considering because France is not like a lot of other places. Now, here in the United States... Yeah, so he's saying essentially there's something unique to France that's uh, causing th these riots, but... I have a bigger question. Where exactly has it worked out well for a host first world country to import low IQ groups? So I can understand in certain circumstances where you desperately need the labor and being low IQ uh, isn't disqualifying because you have such a desperate need for labor. But where has it worked out very well for any first world country to import low IQ groups? I'm just unaware of that working out well for anyone everywhere that has done this has ended up with French, these, these type of uh, French race riots. We obviously have a checkered past uh, and a checkered present when it comes to issues of race, and it's part of the conversation all the time. Uh, checkered meaning that uh, different groups tend to have different gifts, tend to perform at different levels, have different levels of educational attainment, different levels of uh, income, different levels of law-abidingness, you know, different levels of committing rape and murder time. And there are members of a number of minorities that are representative in governments at all levels, especially the national level. We've even had a uh, black president. Uh, that is not the situation in France. In France, uh, they made the decision back after the revolution that ethnic conflict was so extreme that they had to redefine what the term... Okay, so where on earth with these particular ethnic mixes have they gotten it right? Right? There are different approaches but none of them have borne any empirical result that uh, any sane country would want to model. Not the United States, not Canada, not Australia, not England, not, not France, not Germany. Term French mean. So it didn't matter if you were Catalan or Basque or from Paris or Marseille or Alsatian, it didn't matter. Everyone was French now. And all of the various groups that had been part of a series of civil wars and disturbances in France going back a millennium, all of a sudden were considered. How do you know if groups are low IQ? Well, it's about the most replicated part of social science. We're in the replication crisis of social science, but the most replicable, most predictive, and most explanatory analysis in social sciences is the predictive power of IQ for, for groups of you know, large numbers, right? You can, give, you can also give an individual kid a, a, an IQ test at age six, and you pretty much know what he's capable of achieving as an adult, all right? If he scores under 100 on a Raven's matrices test at age six, all right, he's never going to graduate college. He's going to need, you know, a lot of help as he goes forward. All of the same family. And in the modern age, what that means is it's illegal, uh, unconstitutional even, to collect ethnic data on the French population. And if everyone was just Basque or Catalan or French or Alsatian, that might be okay. But that is not the France of today. As part now, I know what you're thinking, Forty. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, like, nature color-coded people to our advantage so we could just look at it and see at a glance whether someone was, you know, likely to be dangerous, whether someone was likely to be intelligent, whether someone was likely to be a good fit? Ah, I mean, this, this urge for, for simple solutions. Now, of course, you can look and tell at a glance whether someone's 
usually male or female. And we know that men are 10, 20 times more likely to commit murder than women, that uh, young men are you know, far more likely to commit murder than older men. So I guess there are some things you can just tell at a glance, but uh, unfortunately, nature hasn't color-coded people for our benefit. Gosh darn it. Of the colonial legacy, a number of people from their former colonies have moved to the mainland France, metropolitan France, and even have French citizenship. In fact, in some cases, their great-great-grandparents had French citizenship. So these are not people who arrived recently. But because it's illegal, unconstitutional. Wow. So the people writing are not necessarily people who've arrived recently, but apparently knowing who someone's ancestors are is highly predictive of you know how individuals will perform and it's true like low performing groups tend to stay low performing over many generations so sometimes they even regress so in some ways like second and third first second and third mexican immigrants to california are higher achieving than fourth and fifth generation mexican immigrants Institutional to collect any sort of racial data, they exist as a sort of second class that is, from the American term, almost undocumented because of the racism that exists in all societies. So, in the case of. So, why do I assume that these rioters are low IQ? Because higher IQ people are more able to see the future, and smarter people would recognize that participating in riots like these has a very good probability of destroying your future life prospects. And so, higher IQ people would be much less likely to engage in the type of rioting that is convulsing France right now. Also, we know the average IQ of a prison population is usually around 90. So crime is overwhelmingly something that is committed by low IQ people, except for you know high IQ forms of white-collar crime. France, they don't even know how big the racial problem is. It's probably about 15% of the population is non-ethnic French. But legally French. Uh, and that has institutionalized the racism in a way that we have a really hard time. Institutionalized the racism, right? There's, there's no such thing as racism. It's an entirely you know, made-up moral category. People just prefer people like themselves, right? Everyone has an in-group preference. And uh, often race is a component of people's in-group preference. Lib Medley knows that if the, the mean IQ is mean, then it's better unseen processing here in the United States. In many cases, it's more similar to what they've got in Brazil. You've got an urban center where the ethnic French live that is relatively well off, and then you've got a ring of suburbs that is more akin to... So were the January 6th rioters all low IQ? Uh, they were not rocket scientists. All right, It was an idiotic thing to do, and yeah, I think that they were a very modest IQ. I, I would be surprised if the average IQ of the January 6th rioters, particularly the ones fighting the police, you know, was much above 100. So anyone with anything to lose would, would have been highly unlikely to participate in the January 6th riots. So if you had a prestigious position, such as you're a TV commentator, you are a professor, you were an important bureaucrat, you're a CEO of a company, right? you'd be highly unlikely to participate in things like the January 6th riots or the current uh, French race riots slums where most of the non-ethnic French who are still French citizens live. Would uh, Forty send the January 6th people to Gitmo if he were president? I, I would just, uh, I would allow the justice system to work. I, I am not up in arms that some of them, you know, have been sentenced to years in prison. Like, I think anyone who participated in the January 6th riots and didn't get shot and killed on the spot by police should simply count themselves lucky. And so that they are still alive 
right? I think they should simply have gratitude for that. So I am all for cracking down and prosecuting rioters, whether they are on the right or the left, prosecuting them to the full extent of the law. I don't think it's necessary to send them to Gitmo, but uh, put them away for a long time in prison. Let that serve as a warning to others. It's a really stupid thing to, to do, but they did. It wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't a coup. It was a riot that got out of control, and uh, idiotic people need to be punished for that sort of destructive behavior. And because the French can't even do the first step of collecting data in order to get a good grip on what the size of the issue is, it's really hard for the government to apportion resources. Yeah, higher IQ January 6th rioters didn't riot. They stayed away. All right, they weren't heading into combat. So don't join low IQ groups like the Proud Boys or any low IQ groups. Uh, I remember I was walking around with this Orthodox Jew from Israel, and he just started yelling death to the Arabs. I mean, just totally a moronic thing to be yelling in, in Beverly Hills. Right? Beverly Hills is still majority Jewish, but it's just an idiotic thing to be yelling out loud. And uh, it's not really a high IQ thing to do. This was not a, a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist, an accountant, or a professor, or a CEO. Sources outside of law enforcement. So in many ways, parts of France, even in their major cities, resemble a little bit of armed camps. And that makes it very easy for uh, violence to erupt because it's, it's not a big reach for people who are the subject of... You know what makes it really easy for violence to erupt? People who have low, low IQs, don't have much of a future time horizon, don't have a lot to lose, and who have you know, developed all sorts of assertive and aggressive tendencies that may well serve them in one particular environment, but uh, don't serve them as well in a first world country living in the armed camps to rebel against the people who are supposedly providing law and order. Now, for those of you who know my work, you know that I'm very bullish on France in the long run. They never bet their economic, much less their political system, on globalization, and they never integrated their economy into the European Union. They've always seen themselves as a step apart, and that means that they've sacrificed a lot of efficiencies and a lot of the reach they could have gotten under the globalized era in order to maintain a more nationally oriented economic system. That comes at a big cost, but it does mean as globalization breaks down that the French don't have that far to fall, because if the EU were to dissolve tomorrow and freedom of the seas would cease to exist next week, the French economic system is largely in-house. They're a massive producer and exporter of agricultural products. They've got energy nearby in both the North Sea and in Northwest Africa. Uh, they're several countries removed from the Ukraine war and what's going on with the Russians. And their primary economic competitor is also their primary political partner in the current environment, and that is Germany. And unlike the French, the Germans have gone whole hog on globalization to the point that we're already seeing massive problems there when it comes to exposure to the Chinese systems or the Russian systems or whatever. The French have none of that. Okay, I think that's pretty good Peter Zion analysis. It's true. The French did not go in the globalist direction that Germany did. As a result, France may well be better positioned to survive than, than Germany. Germany you know, sold out to Russian energy. They got away with it this past winter because it's about the mildest winter on record. But Germany and its economy seem to be in a lot more trouble than France. And then finally, the French demographic is strong because there's a neonatal sort of policy set that encourages people to have kids in large numbers, giving France the healthiest demographic structure in the world outside of New Zealand. And um, the United States happens to be third in that regard uh, among the advanced countries. So all of these things add up to a strong prognosis for the French over the medium to long term. But the racial issue is absolutely France's Achilles heel. And we're seeing no, the, the racial issue is, is everyone's Achilles heel that has the same proportion of races, all right? It's not 
or something that's uh, unique to France or something particularly French. All right. Might be wondering what went on at the 2023 Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is He. It's spelled as H-E. And that's it. Uh, it is my first name. It is not my pronoun. Um, but I know my name is only two letters in English, but in Chinese, it's actually spelled as <laughs> just one second. <laughs> oh, thank you. Everybody understood. Great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do grow up in China. Uh, I'm from a small town in China. My hometown is pretty small. We only have half a billion people. <laughs> yeah, they're all Chinese. Um, you probably can tell I am pretty single. I'm in my 30s and uh, very horny. <laughs> For love and uh, visa sponsorship. <laughs> Pretty desperate. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. Like, I'm being single, have driven my mom insanely progressive now. Like, in my early 20s, she said to me, she was like, that's my name. <laughs> you can only date Chinese guy from mainland China. I was like, okay. In my late 20s, she was like, hmm. Obama, kind of black, is fine. I said, okay. Now I'm in my 30s. She's like, oh, fuck anyone. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm trying. I'm trying to date. I'm trying to stay in shape. Uh, recently, I've been fasting. If you don't know what is fasting, it's basically the modern ways to starve yourself to death. <laughs> You'll be amazed. There are so many ways. Um, I'm fasting this week, and uh, it gave me nightmares. Like, for example, last night, I was dreaming about dry humping. <laughs> rice. <laughs> like, why rice? <laughs> one by one. <laughs> I was like, yes, Jasmine. <laughs> Let's get wet. <laughs> Oh, trying really hard. I'm trying to date, and like, at English is my second language. I feel like dating in English can be a challenging for me. For example, I found dirty talking in English is really confusing. I have to Google it all the time. For example, why it is okay to say, oh, give it to me, daddy? But not okay to say, oh, give it to me, uncle. <laughs> like, come on, guys. <laughs> They're the same generation. <laughs> and um, my uncle is hotter than my dad. Okay, the uh, Melbourne Comedy Festival. All right, I just uh, finished a book. And... It's on the Tudors, right? It's by by this uh, bloke, Peter Aykroyd. He's got this multi-part series on 
History of England. So this is a book on Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. So this is the very conclusion of the book. So talking about the reformation of the English church. So I was raised a Protestant. So I was raised that the most important centuries in Christianity were the about the fourth century when Christianity became the empire, the you know, the, the Roman Empire took over the Roman Empire, and the sixteenth century when we had the Reformation, and maybe the twentieth century. So but the Reformation of the English Church, I learned as a child, you know, through much much of a religious lens. But uh, from this book says that reforming the English church was a political matter, right? It had no roots in popular protest, right? It wasn't the people were crying out for relief from the oppressive burdens, you know, imposed by the Roman Catholic uh, church. It wasn't driven by principles of, you know, humanist reform. You know, no John Calvin or Martin Luther would have been permitted to flourish in England, but Henry VIII and Elizabeth I were highly discouraging of any forms of religious enthusiasm, and the English have remained over the past well, 500 years uh, quite averse to religious enthusiasm. So the reforming the English church was entirely conducted under the direction of the king and the queen. So in continental Europe, those countries that espoused Protestantism, they did away with rituals and customs of Catholicism. There'd be no mass, no Virgin Mary, no court of the saints. Yet King Henry VIII, right, he was basically an Orthodox Catholic, except when it came to papal sovereignty. So he destroyed some monasteries, he replaced the Pope, but the mass survived. And those who supported the king's reforming of the church were of a practical persuasion. So just like the people who supported Hitler and the people who supported Stalin, they did it for practical reasons. So the supporters of King Henry VIII, they wanted the lands and the revenues of the Catholic Church for themselves. They were lawyers and courtiers. They were members of parliament, and they voted in accordance with the king's will. So for only a very few was the theology of the Reformation important. So what you got in England was kind of a mishmash of contradictory elements that developed the name of Anglicanism. Right? Anglicanism is as alien to the pure spirit of Protestantism as it was to the doctrines of Rome. It was just kind of a mix and match of old religion and new religion. So England became Protestant by degrees, by accommodation, by subtle adjustment, and the people went along. So time, forgetfulness, apathy, indifference, right? That weakened the old religion beyond repair. England became a Protestant nation, and what that really meant is that England was no longer Catholic. So the, Protestant, the passage of time accomplished what the will of man could not work. And you see the enduring effects of the Reformation in the emphasis on the individual in England rather than on the community. Private prayer takes the place of public ritual. Manuals address the personal devotional life, your personal work, walk with Jesus, right? They abound. Justification by faith alone becomes one of the cardinal tenets of the new religion. This is wholly private in character, right? The struggles of the individual conscience, the constant awareness of sin, this became the material of the religious pamphlets of that period. And then this becomes secularized into modern liberalism and leftism, right? The constant awareness of sin has become secularized to constant awareness of bigotry, constant you know, awareness of racism, constant awareness of old-fashioned views regarding sex and gender and marriage, all sorts of things. So this 
reforming impulse has become secularized in the modern liberal left dominant perspective. So the Protestant calendar in England became devoted to the celebration of a new national culture. You had the rise of nationalism. You had a belief in divine providence that was gradually changed to submission and obedience to the secular authorities. So the monks in the church had once been responsible for taking care of the poor. Now this is overtaken by secular parish officers, right? You get workhouses, and you get secular solutions to social problems. So the House of Commons takes over the former Royal Chapel of St. Stephen's in 1549, so the law of God gives way to the statutes of Parliament. And you get the idea of good governance and the idea that the state should have the dominant role in social and economic policy. This develops in 16th century England. You have the demise of religious dramas, and you have the rise of secular dramas like those of uh, William Shakespeare. So you have an abandonment of public rituals in the streets. You have increasing social fragmentation. So Roman Catholic countries are socially cohesive, generally speaking, in a way that Protestant countries are not. So you have the rich starting to increasingly think of themselves as a class apart. You have seats that are reserved in churches for families of local stature. And you have the number of pubs double in 50 years after 1580. So with the demise of the established church and the established religious pageants and fraternities of guilds there had to be alternate sources of refreshment. And then this all became secularized into modern left liberalism as embodied here by Robert Wright talking with Mickey Kaus. Yeah, it, was, it, was it was a moving testimonial to the innate urge of humans to be creative, and you pissed all over it just because you were in a bad mood. I didn't piss all over it. Listen, here's... You said it's going to lead to world war. Speaking so you're going to explain, you're going to explain to us now why it's going to lead. You promised you'd explain why this is going to lead to world war. Speaking of piss, Nathan Jackson did, writes, I'm so pissed at you, Bob. The Alan Arkin speech was the best part of the episode, and you selfishly ruined it. We spend the majority of each episode listening to you opine on grand concepts in international relations, quantum physics, religion, and natural selection. Wouldn't kill you to let Mickey chime in on artistic or humanistic content occasionally, if or humanist content occasionally. If I only yeah, wanted, Bob. if I only wanted conceptual material, I go to the library and check out great courses to listen to while I mow. I guess he mows the lawn while listening to us. I like that. I listen to podcasts while yeah. mowing the lawn, but I digress. He says, you're such an ass sometimes. We're back. He's talking about me again. Hope you re-listen to these from time to time to hear how dismissive you are of other people. Also, nobody gives a shit about these Apple TV shows you keep blogging. On that last point, Mickey, I just want to say something, okay? Silo was suggested to us by a commenter, and the, sh and the, Apple, the other Apple show we talked about that I'm aware of, Severance, was suggested to us by a commenter. Okay, this is not Bob but imposing his will. This is Bob being responsive to the commenters, which is what I'm doing now, by the way. You're ignoring them. Okay, so this is going to come to a point, and it's going to be such a shattering point that you're going to thank me for playing that palaver. But uh, first of all, there's a question in the chat. What was the difference in religious beliefs between those who supported slavery and those who did not? So those whose religion was more 
attuned to the status quo were you know, less likely to call for change. And those who are already on the margins of society were more likely to call for change. Now, you can rationalize that as uh, you know, more sophisticated you know, theological differences, but people, generally speaking, act you know, what's in their uh, self-interest. All right. What do we have here? A little breaking news, do we, from uh, Fox? A desperate manhunt now underway for a homicide suspect on the loose. People have been locking their doors of their houses, of their cars, keeping watch on the parking lots and in their back lawns, living now on this Sunday on high alert. Here's the suspect. He escaped from the Warren County, Pennsylvania prison three days ago. Police call him very dangerous, that he has, quote, survivorless skills. That means he could live in the woods, survive on the land, eat wild animals and camouflage himself from the Okay, why did I break for that? All right, so believe me, there's a point, a profound point, a shattering point that's uh, coming here in this discussion between Robert Wright and Mickey Carlson. And that guy's main complaint, which is you pissed all over the Alan Arkin thing, and you said it would lead to world war, and now you're going to explain to us, as promised, why Alan Arkin's moving testimonial to the human spirit of creativity is going to lead to world war. Take it away, Bob. Well, first of all, how did I ruin it? So, so it, it, he, did I ruin it just by saying something critical about it? I thought he meant I got in the way of you. Okay, let's see if we can find that uh, Alan Arkin speech here. Is this it? Uh, wait, I'm looking for his uh, speech. Here we go. I know you're not supposed to read, uh, but I would be totally incoherent if I didn't. It's, it's handwritten. Okay, maybe it's not that speech. I'm not going to take the chance. You, you were going to continue to rhapsodize. My eyes were going to get moist, uh, which was I, not going to happen, not a rhapsodizing type. So why here's the underlying philosophy behind this meandering discussion between Robert Wright and uh, Mickey Kaus. So why would people on the liberal left intelligentsia be suspicious of invoking natural emotions whereby people's eyes get moist? And why would they then connect that to some you know, major world war? Because in part of Protestantism, right? Protestantism, the emergence of reform religion, said that religion was not a matter of any particular place nor a matter of any particular ritual, that it was a matter of what's going on in your heart. And so now that has become secularized. It's become the dominant liberal left perspective on life. And so there is with it a great suspicion of the sacred, right? So Protestant spirituality said that there aren't, you know, sacred places. There aren't sacred groups such as priests or, or popes or, or cardinals. No, you know, one area of life is more sacred than another area of life. So Protestantism largely expelled the sacred from both worship and from social life. It tends to drive out the enchantment and magic in the world, which progressively becomes voided of spirits and meaningful forces. And now when it becomes secularized, this, this ethic wants to be on alert for the, the forces of bigotry and, and racism. So the modern liberal left perspective is the buffered identity, that we are self-possessed strategic agents, and therefore we cannot afford to be overcome by these you know, traditional forms of emotion. So it's not 
the subtraction narrative where humanity simply subtracted religion, what happened is that the liberal left took on the religious impulses of religious reform, meaning Protestantism, and secularized it, right? Mutated it instead of subtracting it. So think of the difference between the old knight who was was king of his castle and could belch and could, you know, say and do pretty much what he wanted within his own property. Then the form of government changed so that uh, knights had to start spending more time at court, right? So they had to banish coarseness and vulgarity from life. And that's what liberals and the left want to do. They want to reduce the reign for coarseness and vulgarity from life that might possibly be racist or homophobic. So the court becomes a stock exchange in which the individual's value is continuously assessed so he can no longer afford the same freedoms. And this is the modern world under the rule of the liberal left. We're all in a stock exchange. Our own value is continuously assessed. Everything I say and do on this show may you know, very well you know, trip me up or advance me in the you know, different areas of my life. So gone were the days in which joking leads to mockery and then to violent disagreement and violence in the span of a few minutes. Gone are the days where you can leap from the most exuberant pleasures to the deepest despondency on the basis of slight impressions. Right, I'm reading from Ronnie Goldman's conservative uh, claims of cultural oppression. What matters now in this new morality, the court morality, which really gets going at the same time the Protestant Reformation, 16th century, what matters now to this day is others' impressions of us rather than our own impression of ourselves. And so the individual's foremost task in a liberal left environment is impression management, which means self-management, which means deep suspicion of welling up with emotion. Because once you well up with emotion, you give in to emotion, you may very well lose your skills at impression management and uh, self-management. You're dodging the issue. You're explaining there was something wrong with the anecdote that was going to lead to war. Yeah, so explain, I, I, that, that was kind of a half-baked thought, but let me try to see if I can finish it off. So what is the Alan Arkin speech again? The Alan Arkin speech is when you teach an acting class, a standard exercise you go through is you tell people to spend five or ten minutes, these are the people would-be actors, being totally boring, mm -hmm. and they are unable to do it because the human's instinct for creativity and not to be bored is so great that they can't avoid trying to do something interesting, okay? All right, uh, some good questions in the chat from Sonny. How do I explain enlightenment and the age of reason? Well, it's a culmination of the age of self-image management and self-management. And it's this idea that we are self-possessed strategic agents who lead Buffett identities so that uh, you know, all sorts of things may be going on around us, but we are strategic, autonomous, uh, buffered identities who can choose our own path in life, while the more traditional understanding of life is that we are not primarily individuals with certain inalienable rights, that uh, reason is very weak, that uh, things that primarily shape us are, one, our genetics, and two, how we were socialized. And compared to those two forces, reason is very weak. The Age of Enlightenment says that reason can direct our ship that we can set forth on the sea of life and allow reason to be our guide. A traditional perspective is reason won't get it done because the forces of genetics or blood, inheritance, and the forces of socialization are far more powerful than the forces of reason. So Robert Wright here is more modern than Mickey Kaus. So Mickey Kaus is less modern than, than me and 
right? I'm, I'm more medieval because I have a traditional religious perspective on life. But the, the more modern approach is that we, we can be autonomous, strategic, self-possessed agents leading a buffered identity. And we have to be continually engaging in, in image management and self-management to you know, make sure that we don't fall in the esteems of the people who are important to us. Hey, and his point was an egalitarian point. This is true of all students, even the dull ones, the smart ones, the good actors, the bad actors. They all want to try to do something interesting, and that is sort of an innate impulse of theirs. And that's okay, so, sort of moving and egalitarian to me. So first so, of all, I wasn't pissing on the speech. My entire comment was about you saying you uh, almost had trouble talking about it without getting emotional. Okay, so I was talking about that, but now I want you to tell me which part... See, and Robert Wright is upset that Mickey Kaus is getting emotional because that frightens him. So Robert Wright is more modern than Mickey Kaus. He is more liberal than Mickey Kaus. So he has a greater belief in the necessity of self-management. And he fears when people become emotional that they will be more likely to engage in antisocial behavior. So a more traditional person is a little more at ease with expressions of emotion. Part of it is it that because maybe I understood what part makes you emotional, makes you choke up. Is it that everyone what? has this? Because that's okay. That's okay. If if that's it's what's that everyone you has choke it, up. it also it's also the spirit of creativity also makes me emotional. Right. Well, see, I t I took it, and it was I was kind of overreaching, but all you know, like I'm against what I mean. What I think gets humankind in trouble is. Uh, well, the most there, there's a generic kind of uh sp spirit of which, like nationalism and tribalism, are manifestations. Does that make sense? Like, uh, so I took I I took you to be getting choked up about how how uh, great and and noble human striving is. Now I don't take you. Even then, it would be well, slight. Is, it would be a slight saying, reach. You're saying you're saying it's speciesist. It's no, 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 species no, 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 What's the point? What? How does? What does People, it have to do with tribalism? Here's, and here's the deal. There, there's a correlation between people who get teary-eyed about speeches about the nobility of human striving and the. And the uh, exploring spirit and the conquering spirit, whatever the fuck else, there's a correlation between those and people who are prone to like nationalistic and tribalistic inspiration. That so Robert Wright is very frightened of people becoming tribal and, and nationalistic, right? He's afraid of these traditional human emotions, right? He's got this idea that people should be strategic, self-possessed, autonomous agents, you know, leading buffered lives, while the traditional perspective is that we don't lead buffered lives, that we are primarily not individuals, but we are part of a tribe or a family or an extended family or, or a nation, and that what's going on with other people affects us, and the power of our own human reason to guide us is largely a delusion because we are much more affected by our genetics and by our socialization, and our reason tends to just be self-interested and rationalization and is not really an effective tool on its own for navigating reality. 
compared to the power of aligning oneself with one's family, extended family, tribe, and nation, and community, and getting one's hero system from your community. That's my conjecture. It's like but there's this, a little this, bit of this Wagner. Being, there's a little bit of Wagner this, in that. This okay? isn't being inspired. This isn't being inspired by a nationalistic impulse. It's being inspired by a universalistic that. human impulse. So you're just doing this guilt by association because people who are verklempt about this good thing are also the same people who are verklempt about this bad thing. That's like the weakest argument I've ever heard. Well, no, but I'm I'm saying. Well, first of all, again, if if what was stirring you was that every all among us, rich and poor, weak and strong, have the same thing, then that's different. Then I misunderstood what you. What did you think I, I was? You think it, what, do you think I was saying? The you nobility would say that of the Amer- fucking Americans? human spirit. That's right. The nobility of the human spirit. And the, and the aren't we great? What's, and, so, what's so terrible about the nobility of the human spirit? That's am, universalistic. It's the human spirit. It's not the American spirit or the Russian spirit. I understand that, but I am conjecturing, and I admit that this is a a highly uh, non-obvious, nobody's going to understand what I mean. I am making the conjecture that there's some kind of correlation between that and the more nefarious tribalistic manifestation. I'm saying like it's all done to the tune of Wagner. Okay. You can't you can't can admire the nobility of anything because some people I'm saying admire you, the nobility in a nationalistic way. No, I didn't say you can't admire the nobility of anything. I'm just saying I'm a little and I'm not even saying no, I'm not even saying to Alan Alda, don't do the speech. I'm not even saying don't do the speeches about, you know, to infinity and beyond. Blah blah. Oh, that reminds me. I watched this Apollo eleven documentary. But um I'm not saying that. I'm saying I'm a little suspicious of people who get teary eyed at that. <laughs> That's all. It's like uh-huh. uh, because I'm I I'm guessing you're like a to- you're like a total killjoy. You can't can't get teary eyed about anything because that makes you Hitler. No, you can get teary eyed about the uh, about the weak and strong, big and strong. He- here's like what what if I, what if I got teary eyed reading Non Zero about our great how humanity is uh, you know has a there's a master plan in reality that's leading us to a Teilhard de Chardin mind meld at the end of time. Uh, I mean, I love to get teary-eyed about that, or does that make me Hitler too? Let me try to set the context. Maybe, maybe I'm being I, I'm hypersensitive about this. And even after I said it, I thought, well, this is kind of a reach. It is a kind of a reach. I'm just throwing it out there as a conjecture. But part of the context about of this is that, like, I'm just realizing, um, you know, I'm pretty close to a fucking freak. It's like nobody else cares about the New York Times being almost nobody cares about the New York Times being systematically biased about the Ukraine war. And most people who hear me do it say, oh, you're a Putin apologist. Now, Mickey, I think you'll agree. I used to make the same critique of coverage of Trump, of, of, of the stuff being anti-Trump. And I hate Trump. I hate Trump. Uh, and I just it's like and I'm just like looking around and I'm looking at 99 percent of Americans process this. The way I watch 99% of Americans process the Iraq war, and I just want to grab them all and go, you are the reason there is war. I know. Right. See, this, this great suspicion of strong feelings, traditional ties, traditional attachments, people who lack the disciplined, autonomous self-management, no, presentation management of uh, the modern liberal left elite 
Oh, you think you're on the right side. Putin's the bad guy. Fine. He is. He invaded. I, I, I agree with that part. But the way you're pro- so long as human beings process information, the way you're processing it, we're fucked. Right. We're, we're effed if we, you know, we don't learn to achieve this disembodied, strategic, autonomous, buffered, uh, self-management, disciplined ideal of the liberal left cognitive elite. Okay, 40, any thoughts on Joe Biden's seventh grandchild situation? New York Times opinion piece by my Maureen Dowd called him out for not meeting his granddaughter. I don't think it has any significance. So I can't, can't be bothered to uh, develop any thought on it beyond that. Have I ever cried on a stream? I think I might have here. G'day, mate. Luke uh, Ford here. And about half an hour ago, I found out that uh, my father has died. It was expected. I knew that uh, these were his last days on Earth. So apparently he died in his sleep. And uh, he was in a hospice care. He in uh, the Brisbane area of Australia. So he had a choice between two different hospice care facilities, a Seventh-day Adventist one and a Roman Catholic one. And ironically, he felt more comfortable at the Roman Catholic one. And so that's where he passed uh, this morning about uh, an hour ago in his sleep. So he'd been in hospice care for about a week or so. Uh, Last year of his life was was not pleasant as... uh, the body starts to fail and the the mind starts to fail. And uh, the last, uh, last couple of months, he's not really able to walk. So his two great joys in life were exercise and uh, using his mind to read books and to write books. So he is gone and... And uh, in, in the modern parlance, what do I feel? I, I guess I primarily feel relief. I know that he wanted to go and uh, he wanted to, to leave this world. And so he found the last uh, year full of indignities. And if he couldn't, if he couldn't read, if he couldn't use his mind, if he couldn't even stand up, then uh, he was ready to go. Uh, he was, until about the last year of his life, he was still very active in, in both exercise. He, could, he would walk for miles, he would swim, and he was publishing books. So trying to think, uh, he, had, he had books coming out in, yeah, 2018. He released a commentary on the Book of Romans, right with God, right now, commentary on the Book of Romans. So that came out March 16 of 2018. So I'm sure most of the, the work on the book had been done prior to 2018. He did a commentary on the book of Genesis, which was something that he worked on for many years, and that came out. Okay, let me see if I can find some emotion here. And he released uh, commentaries on the book of Revelation, volumes Where's 1 and emotion? 2. In, that was re-released on Kindle in 2012. Uh, 2012, How to Survive Personal Tragedy, an Australian descent, the Simpson lineage derived from England, Ireland. And uh, I think his father was a telegraph operator, loved to read books. 
uh, Lillian and my father and his older brother Val moved to Sydney, New South Wales. My father's mother was a Saxon love addict. She was like chasing men up and down the eastern seaboard of Australia. My father passed his intermediate certificate in 1943. So, Still looking then, for a motion here. Uh, he believed, I think, in microevolution, but not macroevolution. So I think that means that he believed that God created the major species of life. Uh, he did not believe in a 6,000-year Earth. He believed his brother refused to talk to him for the next 20 years. When and, my father converted uh, to... My father's Adventism. mother was also strongly resistant to the conversion. She had become disenchanted with the Adventist church. So people who convert are usually high in neuroticism, meaning people like me, people like my father. And to kind of handle the chaos inside themselves, they, they look for strict standards and they look to, to, to rebuild their lives on spiritual principles. So my father felt that he could no longer work for these newspapers. He thought that much of what they were doing was unethical. And in the writings of Ellen G. White and recent charges of the church's misuse of funds, John's first guest is the widely respected Adventist theologian, author, and pastor. Where's the emotion, mate? He didn't leave behind a mess for other people to clean up. He was a responsible adult. He... Uh, paid his bills. He was honest. Uh, I never saw him do anything unethical. So, gave me a strong, uh, righteous uh, example. Uh, we were not close. Uh, we were never really close. But when I was a child, we would play a little bit. But I could always tell that it was taking him away from what he really wanted to be doing most of the time. And uh, my father always put his, his Christian ministry first. That was the number one thing for him. So when there were games I wanted to play, uh, sometimes I played them with, uh, <laughs> with other friends' dads or with uh, men who were, say, 10, 20 years older than me. When I was asked, you know, why don't you play that game with your father? I would be like shocked. It's like, no way. I would not want to waste his time. So my father had a very strong focus on his work. And that's what came first. And I accepted that. I thought it was, it was good that he was following his bliss, following his mission, uh, doing what uh, God wanted him to do. And so... Uh, I always, yeah, I think I, I pretty much always accepted that, that for my father, his work came first. Uh, so on the other hand, I would always, I would not always, I would often try to connect with my friend's fathers. So I, I had, I had this desire for substitute father figures because I didn't, didn't really have much of a relationship with my own father. I I completely changed in my attitudes towards my father during the nine months I was at UCLA. So I went to UCLA in August of 1988. So by this time, I'd been ill with chronic fatigue syndrome for six months, wanted to see some new doctors in Southern California. And uh, so I packed my belongings in my 
1968 VW Bug. It was uh, it was an afternoon, like a, I don't know, say a Tuesday afternoon. And uh, my father walked out with me to, to my Bug. It was probably about uh, two in the afternoon. And uh, I think it was the only time in my life I, or that I remember that, that I told my father, I love you. So I was going away to college, said, I love you, dad. And he said, the feeling's mutual. So my father wasn't someone who was uh, very physically or emotionally expressive of his feelings. So so that moment stays in, in my mind. And uh, then I drove away to a dental appointment. And then I had to do one more thing for my former employer, uh, Doug Hanslick, who died about eight years ago. He was a real estate developer in Rockland, California. So I had to take care of one little thing for him at his home. And then about four in the afternoon, I started driving south to UCLA. And I remember stopping at rest stops along the way on I-5 and getting into conversations with these uh, Hispanic guys who lived in South Central Los Angeles. And they said, oh, you should come over and visit us and we'll watch pornography. <laughs> and I said, wait, you live in South Central, no thanks. So I think I finally rolled up, uh, up down the 405. I, I'd never been to UCLA before. This is 1988, so I was, I was 22 years of age. I exited on Sunset Boulevard. I saw the signs to UCLA. And I was driving so slowly, I remember another car just like speeding past me. I take the first uh, turn into UCLA. I think it was Bellagio Road. And I'm just like looking for parking. And I think I roll into UCLA about uh, 3 a.m. And then during my, my nine months at UCLA, just being with these other really smart, high-achieving people, my view of my father just completely changed from... I'd gone there thinking of my father as a great man, even though I was an atheist at the time. I had no interest in Christianity and didn't have much interest in God either. And But I still thought of my father as a great man. But then during, during my nine months at UCLA, I just came to see my father as an emotional cripple. And I came to see that my father had... Um, precipitated most of his own problems such as with the church and and yeah so i just went from kind of venerating my father as a great man to seeing my father as an emotional cripple just from the nine months that i was away at ucla that's when i fell under the spell of dennis prager and so dennis prager became a substitute father figure for me so my father's last years, there were quite a few unpleasant things that he had to undergo. Uh, my father would always try to get the most out of his time once he became a Christian. So he would often uh, read while he was biking. <laughs> he'd be biking along and he'd have a book on the handlebars. And he once took quite a severe fall, did a lot of damage to his teeth about age 18. They gave him trouble ever since. So in his last few years, he had to have all his teeth extracted. And that almost did him in. Uh, 
Okay, so that's about as uh, emotional as I, I've gotten on a stream. Just uh, absolutely slopping over with emotion there. All right, uh, back to the development of modern liberalism and leftism out of the Reformation of religion. So 16th century, 17th century, where once social and political standing was primarily determined by your abilities with the sword, right? Now success and social standing depended upon continuous reflection, foresight, calculation, self-control, precise and articulate regulation of one's own affects, knowledge of the whole terrain, human and non-human, in which one acts. This becomes more and more indispensable preconditions of social success, and this is the current dispensation upon which we operate. If you take into consideration everything you do and say and how that might affect other people and how that affects your own social standing, right? you increasingly minutely manage your own life rather than just reacting, rather than just you know, coming from your traditional impulses, then the more you are, the more you are suited for success in today's world where the liberal left controls almost all of our institutions. So the more modern the man, the more he molds himself deliberately to be this strategic, autonomous, self-possessed agent who tries to steer his way through life on the basis of reason. So the more modern you become, the more disposed you become to observing yourself observing others, and constantly fine-tuning your own behavior. So when you're at court, or even online, or moving in the world today, all right, it, you have to consider the intertwining of all your activities with all your words, how that's going to affect everybody else in your life. So you're inevitably confronted and compelled to observe constant vigilance and to subject everything that you say and everything you do to minute scrutiny. So this is when the Western man becomes psychological, where he develops more precise observation of himself and other people in terms of motives and causal connections, where he develops vigilant self-control and perpetual observation of others. These become the building blocks of social self-preservation. So social status increasingly depends upon how well you wield words rather than swords how closely you adhere to stylistic conventions, to the forms of social intercourse, to how well you mold your emotions to the situation. Do you develop a facility with courtesy? Do you understand the importance of good speech and conversation? And you are expected to develop good taste. This achieves new prestige value. Members at court listen with growing sensitivity to nuances of rhythm, tone, and significance to the spoken and written word. So plebeian expressions have to be eliminated, replaced by a language that is courtly, that it possesses good etiquette, that is clear, transparent, precisely regulated. So this is kind of the opposite of clinging to your guns and religion. And this is the way the modern liberal left operates. And if you want to succeed in the modern world, it helps to have all these skills. So with globalism, with, with technology, we're increasingly living in closer proximity virtually and realistically. We are bound to one another in ever more complex relations of social and functional interdependence. So our chains of social dependency become lengthier and more elaborate, right? And so as these chains become more strong and more elaborate, then the more strenuous becomes demands on our drive control. Until this control is instilled in the individual from his earliest years as an automatic thing, as a self-compulsion that he cannot resist even if he consciously wishes to. So you get the moderation of spontaneous emotion, 
you get the extension of mental space beyond the moment into the past and the future. You start connecting events in terms of cause and effect, not as you know timeless, you know eternal properties, but you get a specific transformation in the human makeup as the state develops the, a monopoly on physical violence, and we become ever more socially interdependent. So we get an ever-widening segment of the population from the top down that develops a strict, continuous, and uniform modes of control of our basic drives. So you sometimes see with older people that they lose control of these basic drives, and they start speaking in inappropriate ways. All right, they, they break conventions. So these interventions were not, you know, at first implemented on the unwashed, uneducated masses, but they were first undertaken by the various elites who then assume responsibility for inculcating stricter control of impulses and emotions in their social inferiors, and then this function was democratized throughout the bourgeois family. So the order feudal nobility basked in its open displays of contempt for the wretchedness of the lower orders. So now the quintessential ambition of the modern elites is to make over the whole of society, to change the lives of everyone, to make everyone conform better to these models which carry strong conviction among these elites. So modern elites are more egalitarian, they are less openly arrogant, but they are also more meddlesome, more paternalistic, and less tolerant. They believe that they embody universal ideas. They see themselves not so much as superior, but more advanced, more educated, and so they feel a special responsibility to reform those who have not yet achieved this elevated state. So we'll get... uh, Play a little bit here from N.S. Lyons from his Substack. Brought to you by Audio.ai. I was in the middle of working on a rather different long essay when eventually I came to the conclusion that I had little choice but to write this one defeated in the way. Okay, so can't a culture have both? Can't it both be individualist and have strong internal cohesion, high social trust? Uh, to some degree. So Australia is individualist, though less individualist than America. It has high social trust and high social cohesion, though less social trust and less co- cohesion than it had prior to the, the 1970s. So to some degree, but generally speaking, autonomy and cohesion are at odds. So just read, I read a good book, guys. So let me Let me find... This this book here it came out in 2015. Key concepts in political, in politics and international relations. So this book does an excellent job of just uh, spelling out, making explicit, you know, the building blocks of political analysis. Most people can't form a coherent uh, political philosophy. They're not literate in the basics of political philosophy. So. There's an entry on about 100 different parts of modern politics. One entry is on multiculturalism. And it notes that uh, one key source of multicultural thinking stems from the attempt to refashion liberal beliefs, which came from Protestantism, to take into account the importance of communal belonging. So liberalism is all about individuals being autonomous, self-regulating, and born with inalienable rights. But this leaves people feeling isolated and disconnected, and people are happier the more interconnected their lives, all right? As C.S. Lewis put it, the price of freedom is loneliness— Happiness comes from ties. So with multiculturalism, it's really a form of group nationalism, right? Because 
individuals are not primarily individuals, right? They are primarily embedded in a tribe, or a family, an extended family, or, or a nation, right? We derive our understanding of the world, our hero system, meaning our framework of moral beliefs, our sense of personal identity, largely from the community, the culture, the, the people, the family, the tribe in which we live and develop. So according to multiculturalism, this means that these different cultures need to be protected and strengthened, particularly when they belong to minority groups. So this demands an emphasis on the politics of recognition, which many people on the alt-right wanted recognition for their type of politics, and self-determination. Right, so multiculturalists generally endorse value pluralism, says that people are bound to disagree about ultimate ends in life, and therefore all beliefs are equally legitimate. Now, how do we go back to monocultural nation-states, right? That can only be done by enforced assimilation or expulsion of ethnic and cultural minorities. Most common criticism of multiculturalism is that it is an enemy of social cohesion, and it is, right? Shared values and a common culture are usually a necessary precondition for a stable and successful society. And there's an entry on nationalism that talks about the cultural nations, such as the Greeks, the Germans, the Russians, the English, and the Irish, that have a national identity that is rooted in a common cultural heritage and language that long predates the achievement of statehood or even the quest for national independence. Then you have political nations such as the British, the Americans, and South Africans who are bound together primarily by shared citizenship and may encompass significant ethnic divisions. So a cultural nation, an ethnically, racially, religiously tied nation is going to have a stronger sense of cohesion than a political nation where people simply share citizenship. So the civic conception of nationhood is one that is generally supported by liberals and socialists, right? It places heavier emphasis on political allegiance than on cultural unity. The organic concept of nationhood, which is advanced by conservatives, is exclusive. It gives priority to a common ethnic identity, a shared history, and a conservative, overwhelming concern is order. So when you hear law and order, right, law is obvious. Order is the appropriate regulation of interactions in your society. So nationalism's the most important, most powerful political force of the past 200 years. The nation state has become regarded as the most appropriate unit of political rule. So international law is largely based on the assumption that nations like individuals have inviolable rights, such as the right to political independence and self-determination. So the world is divided into nation states, and supporters of nationalism see nations generally as organic communities. The humanity is naturally divided into a collection of nations, each possessing a distinctive character and separate identity. Right? Different nations, different peoples have different gifts. So nationalists argue a higher loyalty and deeper political significance attaches to the nation than to any other social group or collective body is what we hold in common. That's why you want to be as united and cohesive as possible. So national ties seem to operate at an instinctual, even primordial, non-rational level. So for liberals and people on the left, the nation-state is largely fashioned out of civic loyalties and allegiances. For conservatives and nationalists, the nation-state is based on ethnic, racial, and organic unity. The nation-state is probably the only viable unit of political rule. It's the basic element in international politics. The vast majority of modern states are nation-states. Nation-states offer the prospect of both cultural cohesion and political unity. 
when people who share a common cultural and ethnic identity gain the right to self-government, then community and citizenship coincide. Nation-states are subject to centrifugal pressures, meaning pressures to fall apart, which is generated by an upsurge in ethnic and regional politics. So sometimes ethnicity and religion displaces nationality as the central organizing principle of political life. So it used to be until the 1960s that it was considered unfathomable to publicly say out loud that you put the welfare of your particular group in America, such as blacks or Jews, above the national welfare. But since the 1960s, since we've become multicultural, that's become increasingly acceptable to for Jews to primarily think in terms of what's good for the Jews, for blacks to think in terms of what's good for the blacks, for Hispanics to think, you know, what's good for Mexican-Americans. All right, this is uh, NS Lyons. West, but elements of them survived and went underground. The fundamental feature of these ideologies was that they were collectivist of economic class or ethnic nationality. And by dispensing with the rights... How would I explain Finland asked the chat, and their high levels of social cohesion and happiness, while also having high levels of trust in public institutions and personal freedoms. Okay, how would I explain Finland? I would explain it by, by assuming that Finland is filled with Finns. And as I look at Wikipedia, Finland is 92% Finns. All right? It is overwhelmingly a coherent, cohesive majority nation state, right? So minorities make up only about 8% of Finland. So yeah, that's how I would explain the high level of cohesion, cohesiveness, social trust. People in Finland feel like the government is on their side. While people in America often feel like the government is working against them. So that's how I would explain Finland's success. It's filled with Finns. If Finland became filled with people who are not Finns, I suspect these virtues of Finland would diminish. What is the conservative solution to integrating uh, minority groups in the U.S. that were imported at the start of the country? I think uh, a conservative perspective would be more at ease that segregation is the natural state of a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious society. So I think the more right-wing you are, the more at ease you are with the segregation. And the chat says, just enforce the law. Those who can make it will make it, and those who won't will be in prison. So also, the more right-wing you are, the more skeptical you are about government having the power to assimilate people who, over hundreds of years, have not, generally speaking, generally speaking proved assimilable of the sovereign individual, they were also inevitably totalitarian. Today, a left-wing strain of these ideologies has re-emerged as a form of neo-Marxism mutated by postmodern critical theories, becoming the ideology of the new faith. This ideology is fundamentally anti-liberal in origin and outlook. It is also fundamentally collectivist, emphasizing the abstract rights of identitarian groups, race, gender, well, individualism is not natural, right? We didn't survive through hundreds of thousands of evolution, years of evolution individually, right? Collectivism, group identity is, is far more powerful, far more natural, far more evolutionarily adaptive than individualism. 
Now, you can have greater or lesser levels of individualism that may still be adaptive in particular situations. But generally speaking, the normal, natural, and healthy thing is to have a primary identity that is not as an individual, but as a member of a family, an extended family, a tribe, or a nation. So to the extent that the anti-liberal movement is prioritizing group identity over individual identity, generally speaking, that will be more adaptive, more powerful, will make people happier. Right? Group strategies, generally speaking, outcompete individualist strategies. Sexuality, etc. Over the individual. Much as Marxism put class ahead of the individual, with murderous results. Now this revolutionary anti-liberal ideology is engaged in a struggle to overthrow and replace liberalism. Okay, not every anti-liberal movement is, is murderous, all right? Putting group identity ahead of individual identity does not inevitably lead to genocide. Threatening to return us to an age of either totalitarian oppression or primitive tribalism. The polio-liberals... Uh, Poland and Hungary also filled with ethnic Poles and ethnic Hungarians. They do not have anywhere the amount of social trust and cohesion that the Finnish have. Yeah, th there's something special about the Finnish. And once you replace the Finnish with other groups, including the Poles and the Hungarians, it's not going to be as cohesive and successful a nation-state. Right? The, the Finns evolved in very harsh conditions, and they created a very powerful, effective, cohesive people. And you just can't replace them and maintain the great things that the Finns have accomplished. The answer is, based on this analysis, fairly straightforward. Liberalism must be reinforced by the renewal and reapplication of greater liberalism. That is, when the classical values of liberalism are restored to predominance in society, most importantly the preeminence of the individual over the collective, then the challenge to Western liberalism will be defeated and liberal democratic civilization saved. There is, however, another powerful frame through which to analyze the emergence of the revolution and its ideology as the inevitable product of liberalism itself. This is the view of a philosophical camp of the counter-revolution that I will call the post-liberals. The post-liberal argument was in recent years, perhaps best first articulated by Polish philosopher Richard Legutko in his 2016 book The Demon in Democracy, Totalitarian Temptations in Free Societies. But it was most powerfully expressed in the English-speaking world by Patrick Deneen's 2018 book why liberalism failed. Simplified, that argument goes like this. Liberalism made the radical autonomy of the individual its greatest good and highest goal. To achieve this total autonomy. Right. Is there anything more important than the total autonomy of the individual? And I'd say, yeah, the success of your people, your nation, your tribe, your community, right? That's, generally speaking, more important than the total autonomy of the individual, right? The idea of total autonomy of the individual is incredibly maladaptive. We obviously did not evolve on, on patterns of you know, total autonomy of the individual. Man had to be freed from all external limits. On one hand, liberalism unleashed the power of technology and the machine of consumer capitalism with a mission to conquer nature and free us from all the material limits and wants imposed by her in her cruelty. On the other hand, liberalism far more influenced by the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau than it would admit, set out to free man from all limits of inherited culture, religion, custom, tradition, hierarchy, place, behavioral norms, 
associations, and relationships, all of which came to be seen as obstacles of oppression standing in the way of the full realization of individual desire and liberty, as presumed to have once existed in a fantastical state of nature, present before the corruption of history and its sins. But there is a profound irony at the heart of liberalism, as Deneen writes, the more completely the sphere of autonomy is secured, the more comprehensive the state must become. The more individuals are liberated from associations and traditions, the more there is a need to regulate behavior through the imposition of positive law, because the rights of individuals must be attained and guaranteed by something, and the state is the only option. Moreover, as the authority of social norms dissipates, they are increasingly felt to be residual, arbitrary, and oppressive, motivating calls for the state to actively work toward their eradication. This cycle is self-reinforcing, as lighter and lighter burdens of obligation, responsibility, and restriction on individual desire and self-expression are felt to be intolerable. So, from any traditional perspective, the idea that you make as a preeminent value, the individual's you know, autonomy, is hard to fathom. Right, uh, back to this book on political concepts. Talked about uh, those who criticize the nation-state ideal point out that a true nation-state can be achieved only through a process of ethnic cleansing, or nation-states are always primarily concerned with their own strategic and economic interests and therefore are an inevitable source of conflict or tension in international affairs. Yes, nation-states are an inevitable source of conflict or tension, but what's the alternative? Uh, the alternative is some kind of globalism. So nationalism is the belief that the nation is the central principle of political organization that's the most powerful animating force in politics over the past 200 years. Nationalism is based on two core assumptions, that humanity is naturally divided into distinct nations, meaning distinct peoples, and second, the nation is a political community in the sense that it is the most appropriate and perhaps only legitimate unit of political rule. So liberal nationalism assigns to the nation a moral status similar to that of the individual, so liberal nationalism assumes that nations have rights just as individuals have rights, such as the right to self-determination. So liberal nationalism holds that all nations are equal and that the nation-state ideal is universally applicable. Conservative nationalism, to which I subscribe, is concerned less with the principled nationalism self-determination, more with the promise of social cohesion and public order embodied in the sentiment of national patriotism. So... A consciousness of nationhood is rooted in the idea of a shared past. So nationalism becomes a defense of traditional values and institutions that have been endorsed by history. So people on the right are much less likely to experiment with ways of organizing families and relations between the sexes, relations between adults and children, relations within communities than people on the left. So for 200 years, nationalism has shaped the world making it the most successful of political creeds. Fear of disorder and social instability, right? That's probably the number one fear for people on the right. It's been a fundamental and abiding concern of Western political philosophy. Order attracts unqualified approval from political theorists, but there are deep differences regarding the most appropriate solutions to the problem of order. So at one extreme, you have Thomas Hobbes arguing that absolute government is the only means of maintaining order. Because the principal human inclination is a perpetual and restless desire for power, ceases, ceasing only in death. I am a Hobbesian. All right. I believe that without government, uh, life will generally be short, nasty, brutish. 
modern politics, the conservative view of order is linked closely to law. Law and order, a single fused concept. Domestic order is best maintained through a fear of punishment and strict enforcement of law and stiff penalties and respect for traditional values. These are the moral bedrock of society. That's what I subscribe to. And then little critique here of modernism, right? The postmodern critique of modernism is that it is impossible to establish objective truths and universal values. So the postmodernist has an incredulity towards meta-narratives. So postmodernism is the attitude that no one narrative, no one system is sufficient to explain the complexity of reality. So to that extent, I am postmodern. Realism, right? That is political theorizing that is realistic in the sense that it is hard-headed about human nature and devoid of wishful thinking and deluded moralizing. So key early thinkers in this tradition include Niccolo Machiavelli and Thomas Hobbes. So the realist international theory is primarily about power and self-interest. He assumed that states will try to be as powerful as they can, that human nature is characterized by selfishness and greed, and that states exhibit the same characteristics. And as states operate in a context of anarchy, there's no higher authority to which one can turn to to effectively arbitrate your dispute with another state. States are forced to rely on self-help, and so they must prioritize security and survival. So realist theory can be summed up in this equation, egoism plus anarchy equals power politics. Realism is probably the oldest theory of international politics. It can be traced back to Thucydides' account of the Peloponnesian Wars, fought 431 to 404 BCE, and to Sun Tzu's classic work on strategy, The Art of War, written at roughly the same time in China. The modern theory of international realism for international relations took shape in the 1930s as a critique of then-dominant liberal internationalism, which is dismissed by realists as utopianism. So after World War II and the onset of the Cold War, realism became the preeminent theory of international relations because the Cold War was dominated by superpower rivalry and a nuclear arms race. Then liberal internationalism became dominant starting in the 1970s far as international relations theory. Okay. Back to NS Lyons. New rights are granted, which require a new expansion of the state to facilitate. Far from there being... So Sonny says, look, I asked you because you said Finland was filled with Finns, and that's why they've been successful. What makes the Finns successful with their homogeneity and Poland not as successful? It's not homogeneity. There are a lot of homogeneous states that are not successful as the Finns. What makes the Finns successful is that they are filled with Finns, right? The Finns are an incredible people, right? They create a more cohesive, more trustworthy, uh, more efficient, more prosperous society than the Poles and the Hungarians and almost any other people on earth. I think they have evolved to survive very harsh winters and to deal with some very nasty neighbors. And so the less intelligent and the less pro-social of them died out, right? They did not pass on their genes. And so that's kind of my, my cold winters theory for why the Finns are so incredibly successful. An inherent conflict between the individual and the state, as so much of modern political reporting would suggest, liberalism establishes a deep and profound connection 
its ideal of liberty can be realized only through a powerful state. If the expansion of freedom is secured by law, then the opposite also holds true in practice. Increasing freedom requires the expansion of law. Thus, liberalism culminates in two ontological points, the liberated individual and the controlling state, Deneen argues. Hobbes's Leviathan perfectly portrayed those realities. The state consists solely of autonomous individuals, and these individuals are contained by the state. Thus, this very liberation in turn generates liberalism's self-reinforcing circle, wherein the increasingly disembedded individual ends up strengthening the state that is its own author. And simultaneously. In this world, gratitude to the past and obligations to the future are replaced by a nearly universal pursuit of immediate gratification, culture, rather than imparting wisdom and experience of the past, so as to cultivate virtues of self-restraint and civility, become synonymous with hedonic titillation, visceral crudeness, and distraction, all oriented toward promoting consumption, appetite, and detachment. As a result, superficially self-maximizing, socially destructive behaviors begin to dominate society. So in case I wasn't clear earlier, I'm sure there are 99% of relatively homogeneous states, right? States that are 90% plus of one ethnicity are not nearly as successful as the Finns. There's something special about the Finns, and I would assume that has something to do with how they evolved in a particularly harsh climate to build a cohesive nation. This is almost the polar opposite of the classical and traditional Christian conceptions of liberty, which did not mean being free. And Poland gets pretty cold, too. They also have very aggressive neighbors on all sides. Must be more than that. Yeah, so a, a people, a, a culture is the combination of a particular sets of genetics combined with particular environment. And so the combo of the Finns genetics and environment has produced a, a super group of people. Free to do whatever one wished in the pursuit of pleasure, but being free from enslavement to one's base appetites, a condition predicated on the cultivation of a just and discriminating self-rule, through which one could, through the alignment of inner virtue with action and the fulfillment of duties and obligations, achieve over the course of one's life a lasting sense of meaning and happiness. Instead, in the end, freed into a state of atomization by liquid liberal modernity, we today find ourselves as individuals replete with rights and defined by our liberty, Right, that's not a recipe for happiness, right? If you're all about your rights and your liberties and your autonomous, you know, pursuit of, you know, whatever is important to you, right, that leads to loneliness, fragmentation, and uh, dislocation, and society and communities deteriorate if this is the dominant way of thinking. So we seem to have reached perhaps an end point in liberalism with this veneration of the autonomy of the individual, so much so that uh, individuals now can choose their own sex. Insecure, powerless, afraid, and alone. The result has been the emergence of totalitarian ideologies, like the budding new faith, with their characteristic politicization of everything but far from being outside forces assailing Enlightenment liberalism. They are, in this view, ideological products inevitably generated by late-stage liberalism's own internal contradictions. Thus, as Deneen puts it, liberalism has failed because liberalism has succeeded. As it becomes fully itself, it generates endemic pathologies more rapidly and pervasively than it is able to produce band-aids and veils to cover them. What we face today is not a set of discrete problems solvable by liberal tools, 
but a systemic challenge arising from a pervasive invisible ideology. The problem is not just in one. So this idea that people are primarily individuals with certain inalienable rights, this is the dominant way of analyzing society, of you know, propagating what is the good life, right? You want freedom, you're an autonomous individual, you've got all these rights, you can go out there and make of yourself what you will, right? This has become the, the dominant mode of social analysis, of individual analysis, and is contrary to a traditional perspective, which I hold that the most important thing about you is your family, your extended family, or the the family or tribe that you converted to, right? The, the people that you spend, spend time with, the people with whom you have the strongest attachments, that's the most important thing about you, generally speaking, rather than your individual nature and your so-called inalienable rights. I don't see people primarily as individuals with inalienable rights, but you're embedded in a community, you're embedded in an extended family, you're embedded in a tribe or a nation, and you have to be able to successfully you know, navigate that, that family, that tribe, that, that community, that nation, and you will get most of your meaning, most of your happiness from your ties to your family and to your nation. Right. If you suffer from a dearth of meaning and purpose in your life, it's because you're disconnected from family, extended family, community, and tribe. Right? The price of freedom, as C.S. Lewis put it, is loneliness, and happiness comes from being tied down, tied down to very explicit ties of family and community and tribal obligations. ...program or application, but in the operating system itself. It is almost impossible for us to conceive that we are in the midst of a legitimation crisis in which our deepest systemic assumptions are subject to dissolution. Taken to its logical conclusion, Deneen argues, liberalism's endgame is unsustainable in every respect. It cannot perpetually enforce order upon a collection of autonomous individuals increasingly shorn of constitutive social norms, nor can it provide endless material growth in a world of limits. And the chat says you can't choose your own sex. Nobody says you can choose your own sex. Perhaps you may have heard of the transsexual movement, which is suggesting, commanding precisely that, that individuals can change their sex. So even though your sex is in your chromosomes, you can always mutilate yourself to accommodate some delusion you have about whether you're you know, truly a member of the opposite sex from which you were born. And... If I am right that the liberal project is ultimately self-contradictory and that it culminates in the twin depletions of moral... So, question from the chat. Do I think individualism that conservatives in the U.S. espouse, such as objectivism a la Ayn Rand, is antithetical to conservative values? Yes. I think uh, uh, liberal libertarianism is like a, a possibly right-wing form of, of the left. I think it's delusional. It's dysfunctional. It does not make for happiness or effectiveness that a group strategy almost always outcompetes an individualist strategy. It, uh, to the extent that people believe it, they will become less functional, uh, less adapted to reality, less happy, less effective in life. So what, what is called right-wing in, in America is you know, support for lower taxes and lower government regulation. There's nothing inherently right-wing about tax rates and government regulation, right? Uh, people who have strong you know, ethnic attachments, all right, are not particularly concerned about tax rates, right? With traditional 
understandings of right wing means that you're rooted with a particular people, right? You have strong ethnic ties and ties to tradition. It's not about uh, reducing government regulation and reducing tax rates. That's a, that's a form of uh, classical liberalism, which is not a traditional right wing movement, right? Cl- classical liberalism emerged as a rejection of what is traditionally right-wing. So people in Australia, in in England, in America, often confuse right-wing with being for lower taxes and for less government regulation. But being right-wing, that has virtually nothing to do with being right-wing. That's that's, uh, some, some development on classical liberal notions of you know total freedom of the market right total you know maximum freedom for the for the market right that's not that's not a right-wing value because right-wing values are about order and tradition and ties to your particular people moral and material reservoirs upon which it has relied then we face a choice we can either elect a future of self-limitation born of the practice and experience of self-governance in local communities or we can back inexorably into a future in which extreme license coexists with extreme oppression. These are not completely new arguments, of course. They in fact essentially mirror the message of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's in famous 1978 Harvard commencement address, a world split apart, delivered to rolled eyes in the West at the time, in which he warned that society has turned out to have scarce defense against the abyss of human decadence, because the defense of individual rights has reached such extremes as to make society as a whole defenseless against certain individuals. Okay, so let's go back to this Andrew Haywood book on political concepts. And this is what he has to say about neoliberalism, right? It's sometimes called neoclassical liberalism. It's an updated version of classical liberalism and classical political economy. A central theme is market fundamentalism and absolute faith in the free market. The belief that the free market mechanisms offer solutions to all economic and social problems. Neoliberals argue that while unregulated market capitalism delivers efficiency, growth, and widespread prosperity, the dead hand of the state saps initiative and discourages enterprise so that neoliberal philosophy is market good, state bad. This is not right-wing. It's understood as right-wing in contemporary political discourse, but it doesn't have any ties to traditional right-wing thought. Key Classical liberalism developed in part as a rejection of tradition. Key neoliberal policies include privatization, low public spending, deregulation, tax cuts, particularly corporate and direct taxes, and reduced welfare provisions. We've seen a rise of neoliberalism since the 1970s from interventionist economic strategies to market-based strategies. You had neoliberalism occurring in Chile following the CIA-backed military coup that overthrew the socialist Salvador Allende in 1973. Its influence spread to Brazil, Argentina, elsewhere in South America. During the 1980s, neoliberalism extended to the USA and the UK, as well as Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. The seemingly irresistible advance that neoliberalism occurred during the 1990s through the influence of institutions of global economic governance and the growing impact of globalization, the World Bank and the IMF, were converted to the Washington Consensus, which is neoliberalism. It aligned with the economic agendas of Reagan and Thatcher, focused on free markets, free trade, liberalization of capital, flexible exchange rates, and balanced budgets. So that's from Andrew Haywood's 2015 book.
It is time in the West to defend not so much human rights as human obligations. Solzhenitsyn had concluded that the mistake must be at the root, at the very basis of human thinking in the past centuries, and that this is the prevailing Western view of the world which was first born. Oh, shoot. No, 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 no. Oh, man. Ah, come on. Nitsen's argument in his Harvard address, in which he declared that the only solution to the totalitarian disasters created by the calamity of a despiritualized and irreligious humanistic consciousness would necessarily exact from us a spiritual upsurge, again for lack of a better term. I'll call those with this view the spiritualists. Yes, I know this has other connotations. Feel free to suggest a better name. A second camp, however, would accept the first proposition, but not the second. The revolution is a dogmatic new religion. But that is precisely the problem. In this view, the new faith can be seen as a pre-modern reactionary movement, post-modern roots or not, and is in practice not that far removed from any other religious fundamentalist movement, like the Islamist jihadists, bent on tearing down Western modernity, doing away with all the free-thinking intellectuals, ending scientific advancement, science being labeled a product of colonial white supremacy culture with no more inherent validity than witchcraft, and implementing an excruciatingly dull neo-theocracy where there would be... Okay, back to this uh, Andrew Hayward book on political concepts. All right, left and right. Let's define them. These are terms used as a shorthand method for describing political ideas and beliefs. So on the far left, you got communism, then you move towards the center, you got socialism, then liberalism, conservatism, and on the far right, you got fascism. So left-wing views tend to support intervention and collectivism. Right-wing ones favor the market and individualism. This distinction reflects deeper, if imperfectly defined, ideological or value differences. So ideas such as freedom, equality, fraternity, rights, progress, reform, and internationalism generally seem to have a left-wing character, notions such as Authority, hierarchy, order, duty, tradition, reaction, and nationalism are generally seen as having a right-wing character. So the modern terms of left and right go back, of course, to the French Revolution. And is that it? Yep, that's it. would be no further blasphemy, including no music, dancing, or fun as it would presumably all be racist. I will call these people the rationalists. Scott Alexander and the rationalists might be mad, but I suspect many of them are already in this camp anyway. From this view, the proper response to the predations of the new faith is first to reinforce norms and structures of secular pluralism, requiring someone to vocalize specific biology defying gender pronouns they don't believe in, for example is wrong precisely because it forces a religious belief system on them that they don't hold to. And this is just as much a problem for an atheist humanist as for a Christian. But, moreover, it is precisely their sort of disciplined rational thinking that will be necessary to inoculate people against the simplistic and irrational mental pathologies of the revolution. Additionally, this camp, which I assume would include the new atheists, would argue that since it was precisely organized religion, that they and so many others were trying to free themselves from in the first place, and they have no desire to live under any, say, Christian integralist polity, any more than under the new faith, trying to revive religion would also be a major tactical error, more likely to push liberal-minded people away, than draw them into solidarity with the counter-revolution. 
There is presumably a third camp that rejects the first premise that the new faith is a religion as well, but I can't then know. So there's a great book that came out in 2013, Predisposed Liberals, Conservatives, and the Biology of Political Differences. And it says that uh, individual human genetic variation is substantial. Many people are uncomfortable with this fact because they believe it opens the possibility that various ethnic, racial, and gender groups are genetically different. This concern is overblown. Within groups, variation usually dwarfs variation between groups. That's not really an argument against the significance of uh, group differences. So they tried to make the claim that uh, humans are not uh, particularly genetically distinct and that the reality of individual-level genetic variation fails to support the unsavory ideas of uh, racists. And the book quotes from population geneticists Gregory Cochran and Henry Harpending. There is a tradition of caution that approaches self-censorship in discussions of human biological diversity. But even if between-group differences are as large as some apparently fear, normative preferences should not blinker us from empirical reality. Genomic important differences exist across people and between peoples. which way they'd lean on the second. What is interesting on this question is that it isn't easy to divide members of the counter-revolution into spiritualist, rationalist, or other camps along the same lines as the paleo and post-liberals. In many cases, their views seem to diverge in unpredictable ways. But in any case, how one answers this question is likely to lead to very different prescriptions of what will be necessary moving forward. Three, is the machine of technological capitalism sustainable? And is it a blessing or a curse? Do we live in a world of limits? The answer to that question will have big consequences, no matter how it is answered. As argued by the post-liberals discussed in Question I, the defining characteristic of liberalism is that it rejects all limits of self, custom, or nature. Which is why, ever since the era of Francis Bacon, Liberals have worked tirelessly to master nature and thereby overcome natural constraints on liberty and want, whether via nitrogen fixation fertilizer, combustion engine, birth control pill, or cross-sex hormones. Yet there are some who argue that there are always eventually limits that must be observed, and to attempt to pretend otherwise is only hubris and folly of the most dangerous kind. If, in the case of nature, there is some maximum point of finitude in available resources, and growth in consumption is proceeding exponentially. Then they would point out, by simple logic, that growth cannot continue forever. Therefore, limits on consumption must be observed. When it comes to natural limits, such people tend to end up being called environmentalists. But, in another sense, they could also be properly described as conservatives, in that their observance of limits stands in direct contradiction to the liberal project. It is interesting. Here's a little bit more from this terrific 2013 book, uh, Predisposed. So the political left has been associated with support for equality and tolerance of departures from tradition. Right? The right is more supportive of authority, hierarchy, and order, that uh, time-tested ways of organizing families and communities and nations are usually superior to innovative ways. And the authors of this book, Predisposed, Liberals, Conservatives, and the Biology of Political Differences, say that we should accept the political orientations are connected to deep physio-cognitive predispositions in a broadly predictable fashion. 
And so they want to reject two widely accepted assertions. The first is that all politics is culturally and historically idiosyncratic. If that's true, it becomes pointless to generalize about political divisions. Second assertion is that though human physical traits vary, we all share the same basic psychological, emotional, and cognitive architecture. Right? If human architecture is all the same, it follows that differences in politics cannot be more than skin deep and that physio-cognitive predispositions are irrelevant. But these assertions are incorrect. They have it backwards. Right? Politics is universal. Human nature varies. Evolution is the process of species adapting to their environments, and because the environment itself is a moving target, the process never ends. But evolution is not a destination. It is a temporary, often lagging accommodation to environmental realities that exist at a certain time and place. The environment shifts again. Evolution will move in a different direction. So no genetically-based political predisposition is rightly viewed as more or less evolved. So when you lived in hunter-gatherer societies prior to the advent of mass agriculture, life was short and filled with remarkable range of threats. So selection pressures in such environments favored individuals with a higher degree of negativity bias, tend to be people on the right, right? People who approach novel situations with great caution, people who are loyal to their group and who are suspicious of outsiders. Right? These would be the individuals most likely to avoid danger, so they'd be less likely to open themselves up to situations in which they would be vulnerable. Such individuals would be responsive and attentive to threats. This would produce individuals who, in a modern state, would display conservative political predispositions. Then there were environments where individuals who tried new things, who opened themselves up to members of out-groups, right, and had little negativity bias, all right, there are many environments in which these people were rare because that was a losing long-term strategy. But... Social units isolated from threat for a long period of time you know, probably developed the, you know, permitted the development of uh, proto-liberals in the mix, but most hunter-gatherer groups would have needed to keep a constant eye on the horizon and even the next hut. So these were conservative societies. They did not make big changes. They went through life you know, highly suspicious of outgroups. But most people in the developed world today do not have the same constant life-threatening worries that existed in the distance past. People today can expand their circle of social contacts and their ethical concerns beyond their family and tribe, people far away and perhaps even to animals. But this produces people on the left, liberalism. The liberalism may well be an evolutionary luxury afforded by negative stimuli becoming less prevalent and less deadly. But if our environment shifts back to a threat-filled atmosphere, then right-wingers are going to dominate. And the environmental evolutionary selection pressures will favor those with you know, more racist, more suspicious views of outgroups. Right? So certain environments produce a positive selection for conservative orientations, and other environments produce a positive selection for liberal orientations. So orientation towards outgroup, openness to new experiences, and heightened negativity bias you know, fit more naturally with left and right divisions than economic issues, right? Economic issues are secondary. So people who are highly ethnocentric do not give a fig for individual rights, and they can see the connection between conservatism and free market principles as a relatively recent development. ...to observe that, in the United States, mainstream conservatives and liberals tend to each represent one side of the single coin that is liberalism, generally speaking. 
Liberals approve of the abolition of limits on custom, behavior, and relationships, but frown at the subjugation of nature in the pursuit of limitless consumption. Conservatives, meanwhile, approve of the material bounty that comes from the overcoming of nature and her supposed limits, but oppose the tearing down of limits of the social and moral variety. The private jet-flying, globe-trotting, neoliberal, socially liberal but fiscally conservative, multinational executive, who occasionally makes concerned noises about climate change or human rights over cocktails in Dubai, is probably closer to adopting his final form as a true liberal. There are again two camps that tend to emerge here. Fortunately, this time someone else has already come up with some good names for them. That someone was Charles C. Mann, in his book The Wizard and the Prophet, in which he examines two distinct philosophical orientations through the lives of two characteristic figures, William Folkt and Norman Borlaug. Folkt, one of the founders of environmentalism, was a prophet. He spent his life warning repeatedly that the human population and its consumptive appetites were growing faster than the earth's carrying capacity could bear, and that Malthusian ruin would befall us all if we didn't cut back. In other words, he was a prophet. Okay, so uh, Carl Schmidt is becoming increasingly popular in China. On supremacist ethnic policy, specifically ethnic Han nationalism, Han Chinese make up around 92% of the population in broader China. Behind the veil, helping to drive this stuff is an increasingly dominant academic movement in China, sometimes referred to as the neo-authoritarians or neo-statists, that draws on some rather curious influences for communists. Most notably, Hitler's crown jurist, Nazi philosopher Karl Schmidt. Interest in Schmidt has taken off because his theories on the proper role of state power are quite conveniently fitting and appropriate for the new China, or so the leading man of this movement, and top CCP philosopher, Wang Huning, whispers into Xi Jinping's ear. Several of Schmidt's theories are of particular interest in Beijing. The first is his positioning of sovereign authority at the apex of political decision-making. While liberals consider the rule of law as having the final word when political values clash, Schmidt believes arbitrary commitments to law deprive state and politics of their specific meaning, and thus argues sovereign executive power can and should act unhampered by legality when in a state of exception. Otherwise, it isn't really sovereign. The sovereign decides when the situation constitutes a state of exception. Naturally, this tends to go together well with one-man rule. Second, in Schmidt's view, all politics is at essence about group power. Indeed, the only specific political distinction is that between friend and enemy. That is, the political existence of a group must be based on a specific identity that serves as the substance of a friend-enemy distinction. Therefore, a state can only be legitimate if its legal boundaries also embody a clear friend-enemy distinction. This identitarianism... And a question from the chat. Would this mean that right-wingers would be incentivized to create more chaos in a modern stable system so they can get power? For example, high crime in conservative states so they stay in power. I'm not sure about that. Definitely high crime rates do mean more success for right-wing orientations, even right-wing orientations coming from Democrats. Like Democrats, liberals, lefties don't like high crime, and so they're much more likely under periods of, of stress and threat to go for right-wing solutions, even if they're right-wing solutions coming from Democrats or conservatives. But yeah, there is a time and a place where creating instability and chaos 
is going to be advantageous to your political fortunes, whether you're on the right or the left. Dovetails well with the CCP's Leninist instincts. Mao having labeled, who are our enemies? Who are our friends? As the question of the first importance for the revolution. Finally, the friend-enemy distinction necessitates that the sovereign promote the internal unity and homogeneity of the state, including the suppression or elimination of internal enemies who do not endorse or conform with that distinction. It is this last idea that has had the greatest consequences in China. After a series of violent anti-Han riots broke out in China's western Xinjiang region in 2009. So China is about 92% Han Chinese, and they have uh, become quite strict with regard to uh, portions of the population that are not Han Chinese. So China, like India, is increasingly governed for the benefit of its majority population. ...and low social trust in China has become so acute that it leads to periodic bouts of anguished societal soul-searching. No, the seeds of deracinated individualism are definitely now planted deep in China, with a growing contingent of Chinese netizens describing existing in a state of nihilistic despair. This has been encapsulated in the online slang term Neijuan, involution, which describes a turning inward by individuals and society due to, as one popular post put it, a prevalent sense of being stuck in a draining rat race where everyone loses. See, doomers of the West, you aren't alone. This despair has now manifested itself in a movement known as tanging, or lying flat, in which people attempt to escape the rat race by resolving to do the absolute bare minimum amount of work required to live, becoming modern ascetics, living off the relatively meager generosity of the Chinese state. So if unhappy Chinese millennials now spend their time lying around alone in their absurdly overpriced rented studio apartments, aimlessly browsing the internet, listening to VAVA, and complaining about the pressures of liquid modernity, it may be because the genie of liberalism never made it completely back into the bottle after all. Socialism strikes back. Xi's square deal and anti-liberal progressivism. Xi Jinping slipped up, and now he knows it. He defined himself by his political anti-liberalism, but it crept in through the back door he'd left open for the tech bros and the Goldman Sachs bankers. Now the kids are all mad, and his socialism looks like a joke what a mess. Rapid-onset decadence simply will not do for a rising empire. So in recent months, she has launched a revolutionary offensive to rectify this mistake and head off all the perils of economic and cultural liberalism. The state has announced it has had quite enough of vulgar internet celebrities promoting their lascivious lifestyles, and leading celebrities have begun disappearing. Disgusted internet regulators have promised to resolve the problem of chaos that is online fandom culture. Miners have been banned from using the opium of the mind, video games, for more than three hours per week. The government has vowed to resolutely put an end to sissy men, that would be Neong Pao, literally girly guns, epitomized by Korean boy band stars, appearing on the screens of impressionable Chinese youth. LGBT community groups have been erased from the internet and banned from messaging apps. A viral nationalist blog post vigorously promoted across state media in August helpfully explained that the liberal West was clearly increasing its efforts to launch a color revolution against China through a tittytainment strategy, oh known and that if China let our young generation lose their toughness and virility, then we will fall just like the Soviet Union did. Fortunately, it said, Xi's profound revolution will ensure that, 
the cultural market will no longer be a paradise for sissy stars, and news and public opinion will no longer be in a position of worshipping Western culture. But fortifying the culture and whipping those no-good tanging dropouts into virile, productive patriots is only a secondary objective. The real priority, as she declared in January, is that we absolutely must not allow the gap between rich and poor to get wider. All right, this is from NS Lyons here, another essay. And its maritime peripheral shipbuilding program to produce aircraft carriers and their escorts. The first, the Lianing, was retrofitted from a former Ukrainian scrap heap, once called the Varyag, and commissioned in 2012. But the second, the Shandong, launched in 2017 and commissioned in 2019, was fully domestically produced, if still well behind American counterparts. The third, nearing completion in a Shanghai shipyard, is expected to be considerably larger and more advanced, including with modern electromagnetic launch technology. The keel has already been laid for a fourth. Two more, this time nuclear-powered, are expected to be added eventually, bringing the number of carrier battle groups China aims to field by mid-century to six. Now the most striking thing about this is that China has worked very hard over the last two decades to pioneer and mass-produce a whole generation of cheap and deadly asymmetric anti-access area denial weapons, such as the DF-21D carrier killer anti-ship ballistic missile, advanced sub- and air-launched cruise missiles, and swarms of various drones, all specifically designed to make the aircraft carrier obsolete as a weapon of modern, high-intensity warfare. The fact that China is still so interested in building them, while knowing full well just how easily peer-level foes will be able to sink them, therefore seems like a paradox. Until, that is, one realizes that China knows these aircraft carriers will still serve for decades to come as wonderfully big sticks with which to remind small countries that they are still small. The U.S. Navy hasn't nicknamed them 90,000 tons of diplomacy for nothing, after all. Their very existence, therefore, makes it pretty clear that all refrains that China is, by some virtue of civilizational history, different, or does not carry aggressive or hegemonic traits in its genes, as she has assured us, and will never seek to project power beyond its borders, should be viewed with some serious skepticism. That an imperial projection will follow if China succeeds in its quest to move closer to center stage and create, if not a Chinese-led world order, then at least a much more multipolar, i.e. less American, one, seems rather inevitable. This is not because China is necessarily some kind of new and uniquely menacing entity, but rather because it is in essence something so historically normal. It is merely following, consciously or unconsciously, in the footsteps of so many others who have walked the path of empire, even if they blundered into it in a fit of absence of mind, as some have tried to claim in the past, and should be expected to default to behavior at about the same baseline that most others have in the same circumstances. The truth is that the contours of power always remain roughly the same across time. Power. What is China? The first way to answer that is to say that the rise of China is not something new at all. But the return of something old? Empire, yes. But also of the simple, unchanging realities of power that humanity had long understood, and only recently seemed to forget. When Russia sent barely disguised troops into Ukraine to seize Crimea and other portions of the country in 2014, a shock then U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry exclaimed that, you just don't in the 21st century behave in 19th century fashion by invading another country. 
This was a rather revealing remark in a couple of ways. First, in its seemingly oblivious hypocrisy, coming from a country that had recently launched wars in Libya, Iraq, and Afghanistan. But, more essentially, in its assumption that international politics is somehow in any fundamental way different in the 21st century than it was in the 19th. As Thucydides could have told him more than two millennia ago, the nations of men will always behave in ways such as have occurred and always will occur, as long as the nature of mankind remains the same. Why might Carey have thought otherwise? Perhaps because he was still in the grip of a rather odd ideological phenomenon that seemed to seize much of the West in the unique period that followed the end of the Cold War. This was a period in which American hyperpower became so all-encompassing that some living in the world that power had created seemed to forget that it even existed, like fish unaware of the water in which they swam. Simultaneously, the collapse of the Soviet Union seemed like proof that a triumphant liberalism was the ideological end of history. So... Russia and China are much friendlier to realism as a foreign policy than the United States. So the United States is much more into liberal internationalism, and it's a luxury that the United States could engage in when they were the one sole superpower in the world, as they pretty much were from 1990 until perhaps uh, 2012, 2015. So... John Mearsheimer's thinking, right, his foreign policy realism uh, books and essays, right, uh, far more highly regarded in China and I would assume in Russia compared to the United States. So when John Mearsheimer goes to China, he feels like he's at home because he's talking to other foreign policy realists. So China and Russia, they don't have the luxury of being liberal internationalists, right? They are in a difficult situation, right, just like uh, Israel, and so they have to be realist. United States, because it's been the dominant power, it's been the world's number one economic power since about the 1880s and then became the world's number one military power during World War II. And so with all that power has come some escape from responsibility. And so Americans have been much more predisposed to engage in delusional thinking about uh, liberal internationalism. So China and Russia and Israel, right, these countries are very much more realistic in their policies because they have to be. That's it for me. Take care. Bye-bye.